of the Americas. I am your caffeinated host, Jesse Wiest. Thank you for listening. Now, as you know, uh, Big Heads Media is kind of like the Netflix of podcasts. What they do is sift through the great sandbox of the internet and find the best podcasts, and they collect them for people like me or you. And um, needless to say, that means I'm part of an awesome uh, just group of history shows. Now, one in particular that I really like is Body Count, um, which, frankly, I like it for a selfish reason. It helps my pub trivia team. It's truly a badass show, and I'm just going to let this promo speak for its... While you may think that history is, eh, vaguely interesting, the truth is it's fun and metal AF. Echoes of the past are still reverberating through our world today, and Body Count is here to show you how our shared history affects your life on the daily. Whether you know it or not, so, are you past the point of higher education? Feel like you didn't learn anything from your high school history teacher? Or just didn't give a flying crap about it? Are you tired of always missing out on the yellow history pie piece in Trivial Pursuit? Are you the horror of all your friends' game nights? Did you once proudly announce that Napoleon Bonaparte was a super short little nutsack? When in reality, he was an average-sized nutsack. Have you been thinking about living under a faulty dam? Or perhaps an active volcano? <laughs> well, we have good news. It's not too late for you or your homeowner's insurance. Come on over and listen to Body Count, the podcast that explores death and disaster through the ages with only one rule. Someone, or usually a lot of someone's, dies. Because history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. A proud member of the MSE Podcast Network. All right, I really appreciate you listening to that, folks, um, and for supporting the people who support this show. Uh, awesome. Now, if you want to support the show directly, uh, please take a moment to share, uh, subscribe, uh, and review the podcast. Uh, that really helps generate, I guess, uh, what I would call algorithmic traffic. Um, and if that isn't enough for you, you can go to patreon.com slash Atlantic World and become a patron of the show. You can do that for as little as a dollar per month. Which, for uh, the amount of content uh, all of these episodes are, is like a tiny amount of money for some great history. Um, in addition, you'll get to listen to uh, an audio form of a new project I'm working on. It's called The Man Who Killed George Washington. Uh, ultimately, I think I'm going to turn it into a graphic novel uh, that you could purchase in a physical form. Um, uh, I'm uploading a preview uh, for The Man Who Killed George Washington soon, so you can check that out. And, and see if you want to want to hear more uh, and become a patron just for, just to hear more of that. Anyway, 
Today's episode is a little bit different than the first three parts of the Conquest of the Americas. That's because the focus on today's episode isn't really entirely going to be about conquest, I guess you could say, to the same degree that our previous episodes have focused on. That's not to say that the early history of, uh, you know, between Europeans and Brazilians wasn't full of conflict, enslavement, and, you know, all the other acts of violence that accompany the, the Spanish presence in, say, Hispaniola. Uh, because early Brazilian history is very similar in that regard. But, frankly, much of that conquest of Brazil doesn't really occur until the second half of the 16th century, maybe about 50 years after the Spanish conquistadors uh, begin uh, reconnoitering around the South American coastline. Um, and that's when a Portuguese man named Pedro Alvarez Cabral kind of claims, uh, or excuse me, and, and, and uh, 50 years after Pedro Alvarez Cabral claimed Brazil for Portugal. There's a lot of stuff that makes Brazil different than Hispaniola. Um, For starters, the natives of Brazil don't wear golden jewelry. And so what I term the Spanish octopus, after it kind of feels out coastal Brazil, it really moves on in search of mineral wealth. And in fact, with the amount of, I mean, the sheer weight of gold and silver that is quote-unquote discovered in Mexico and then in Peru, well, it's... I mean, it's kind of easy almost to see how the Spanish got distracted, you could say. But that isn't to say that Brazil had no value to Europe. Uh, The word Brazil, in fact, refers to a dye made from a tree common in the rainforests of Brazil, which was quite valuable back in Europe. Uh, To this day, it's still valuable, although historically overexploited, Brazil wood is what attracted the Portuguese. But since their empire was mainly focused at the time on reaching India, they didn't really bother much with colonization in Brazil, uh, not like the Spanish did in the Caribbean. Portuguese conquistadors really only set up a few trading forts, uh, feitorias, on the coastline uh, to trade with the Brazilian Indians. And Brazil is a huge place. Um, So it was also very difficult for the Portuguese to keep other Europeans um, out of Brazil. Of course, the Spanish, but France in particular plays foil to the Portuguese during the first half of the 16th century. And so we're going to talk about the uh, discovery uh, of Brazil, quote-unquote discovery. We'll be discussing after that the secret colonial wars that took place in Brazil. And finally, Brazil was an object of absolute fascination back in Europe. So after we tell those first, the first parts of that story, the, the discovery of Brazil and the early colonial rivalries between Spain, Portugal, and the new upstart France, well, we're going to be talking about European reactions to America. You see, when the Spanish brought back reports of discovering new islands in the Atlantic, it wasn't really clear what it was that they had stumbled across. But a decade later, as Europeans started to grapple with the immensity of Brazil, they started to realize exactly what it was they saw. And what they saw was America. Now, to be clear, what Europeans see in Brazil will shock them to their core. 
Upon meeting the native Brazilians, Europeans were immediately confronted with people who were capable of both horrifying and seducing them. Before Brazil, the European world was one of caste and rigidity, of kings and vassals, nobles and serfs, priests and laymen, men and women. Brazil challenged all of that in ways that most people in Europe probably couldn't even have conceived of before they heard about Brazil. So I don't think it's any coincidence that almost immediately after Brazil is kind of introduced to Europe, Europeans start seriously questioning everything about everything. The Protestant Reformation, the Enlightenment, later revolutions to break free of monarchy. Now, I'm not going to be so bold as to say that the Protestant Reformation or the Enlightenment would not have happened without European contact with the Americas. But they certainly would have happened differently. I mean, if all Europeans enjoyed European society, then why were so many of them wanting to get in leaky wooden boats and risk their lives to escape in the first place? But the impact of uh, American philosophy transformed the European mind in a way that's not so dissimilar that uh, you know a, a powerful hallucinogenic experience could expand your mind. I, I mean, in ways that you could not imagine. Now, the scope of all of that is beyond a single episode, but have no fear. Because once we're done with the topic of the conquest of the Americas, we're going to eventually dive much deeper into European reactions to America. But for now, I'd like just you to keep that in mind. Because as much as this episode is about the colonization of Brazil, it's likewise about the triumph of Brazilian ideas back in Europe. And if we're going to talk all about all of that, well, then there's somebody we need to talk about. Because there's one person more responsible for all of this than anyone else. And he's not entirely responsible. But he definitely bears some responsibility. And uh, Frank, I'll be honest, I didn't realize when I started this show that I was going to be talking as much about this guy as I, as I do. Um, and, but when I started to dig into the research for this episode, I realized that he plays a massive role in history. So I've come to begrudgingly accept that we're going to have to talk about him. His name is Amerigo Vespucci. Yes, the same guy who stole the credit for discovering America and for, from which two continents get their name. Vespucci is most famous for this now as a result of the fictional 1497 voyage he supposedly took to what is now South America before Columbus got there on his third voyage. He took that information from his real voyages to market it back in Europe. And Anyway, we're going to use this episode to talk about one of the most infamous con men of all time. But before we mention, I mention anything else, we need to talk about sources. Now, for this episode, I've used Samuel Elliott Morrison's The European Discovery of America, The Southern Voyages, Benjamin Keene's Latin American uh, Civilization, History and Society, 1492 to the Present, 
John K. Thornton's A Cultural History of the Atlantic World, and Eric R. Wolf's Europe and the People Without History. Now, in addition, uh, Bailey Diffie and George Winneas's work, Foundations of the Portuguese Empire, 1415-1580, and these are all books I've used in previous episodes, uh, but there's new sources for this episode that include... Uh, primary sources like the Letters of Americo Vespucci and other documents illustrative of his career. Um, those include primary sources by Vespucci, Las Casas, and Christopher Columbus, uh, all about the great con man who gave America her name. Uh, in addition, I've got uh, a copy of The Voyage of Pedro Alvarez Cabral to Brazil and India. My uh, edition, the translator and author of the book's introduction, is William Brooks Greenlee. Uh, documents and narratives concerning the discovery and conquest of Latin America, the histories of Brazil, number five, volume two. And the documents in this text provide us with some great additional information on Brazil. Um, the editors of, of that text are Pero de Magelhes and John Stetson, Jr. Um, another great book I used was Go-Betweens, and, and those are the uh, primary source. Secondary sources, new secondary sources, Go-Betweens and the Colonization of Brazil, 1500 to 1600, by Alita Metcalf is an excellent book. It's all about Brazil's early history, and it documents the relationship between Portugal and Brazilian Indians. Um, Capist João Capistrano de Abreu is an author, uh, was an author, uh, and he wrote Chapters of Brazil's Colonial History, 1500 to 1800. And Abreu, uh, uh, he wrote this in the 1800s, he, but nevertheless provided a very illustrative look at Brazil's past. Um, Lawrence Bergreen, uh, the author of Over the Edge of the World, uh, gave me a really fun dive into Magellan's circumnavigation of the globe. And The Brazil Reader, History, Culture, and Politics, edited by Robert Levine and John Crocidi, is a, another a great book on Brazil. And finally, um, maybe my favorite of all, The Red Gold, The Conquest of the Brazilian Indians, 1500 to 1760, is a book by John Hemmings, and it's pretty instrumental to this episode. He tackles a subject that few other historians have in English. Um, now, I've recently kind of figured out a little bit more about uh, show notes and how important those are for podcasts. So I'm going to list these texts in the show notes as well. And, um, you know, I might in the future, in future episodes, I may just put them in the show notes and just refer there, except for uh, when I'm, I'm not sure. I, I like listing them. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, now, with all of that out of the way, Brazil. Now, at the end of the 15th century, Brazil was filled with all sorts of people. There were Arawaks and Caribs, uh, Tupi-Guarani speakers, and Gi-speaking peoples. Now, when Europeans first arrived, they encountered the Tupi-Guarani speaking people. Uh, but they didn't know that. They just called them Caribs. Now, mind you, Europeans didn't really know all that much about the Caribs either. But from what little they reported about either the Carib Indians or the people of Brazil... Uh, it appears that the people of Brazil lived in even freer societies with even fewer class distinctions than Caribs lived. Now, incidentally, it wouldn't be, it won't be until the 17th century that anyone in Europe actually talked to the Caribs to really find out what their society was like, but uh, there's that. 
many of the hundreds of native tribes, though, which inhabited Brazil were similar to the Caribs in, a, in, in certain ways. They were small-scale societies that seemed to Europeans to have no leader at all except in times of war, when one was elected. Now, this person uh, had no power except the power of persuasion. So when a war captain was elected and decided to go to war, it was still up to each individual person whether or not they wanted to go with him. Now, while this was similar both in Brazil and in the, uh, for the Caribs in the Caribbean, uh, some Caribs also owned uh, slaved, enslaved captives. Um, others, mainly uh, important war captains, owned piraguas, the giant well-crafted canoes used in the Caribbean. And so it seems like there was a little bit more differentiation between class in the Caribbean, albeit these are pretty small differentiations in Carib society than, say, the uh, Chupi-Guarani people. Now, or the Gi-speaking peoples, I should say. Now, at any rate, we've spoken a good bit already about Carib and, and Taino or Arawak society in the previous three episodes. And so all I'm going to say about them otherwise for now is that in Brazil, um, Caribs and Arawak societies existed uh, on the Amazon River, along the Amazon River Basin. Um, the two other large-scale cultures in Brazil were the Tupi-Guarani speakers who lived from north to south along Brazil's coastline, and Gi-speaking peoples who lived in the interior valleys beyond the coast. Now, neither of these cultures featured much societal differentiation between people at all. Now, one European chronicler, writing in the late 16th century, wrote that despite the fact that these two ethnic groups spoke different languages, and despite the fact that they were divided into various nations, quote, their similar condition, customs, and heathen rites made them all as one people, unquote. Nothing could be farther from the truth for uh, the Gi-speaking people of the interior. Rather than living as you one united people, they preferred to live in small, scattered houses, in social groups that may, may have been in a pretty constant state of flux. Early writers were constantly writing down the names of tribes or territories and various attempts to create Gi nations. But the lists that were created by uh, European observers were, were always changing. Uh, Historian John Thornton wrote that gay people lived in groups that, quote, never quite fit the idea of fixed, single tribes, unquote. The Tupi-Guarani speakers, who lived along large swaths of Brazil's coastline, preferred to live in larger villages, generally of about seven communal houses, each of which might, might, might hold 70 or 80 families. Their villages held generally around 3,000 people on average. Now, Tupi and Guarani and Tupi Guarani and Gi people were similar, however, in that their lives were lived with a startling lack of political authority in comparison to what you and I are used to. And this, of course, shocked Europeans who would have been startled by the lack of political authority uh, that we uh, live under. Now, Europeans in the 15th and 16th century, uh, at the start of the 16th century, could not hardly believe 
that people existed on planet Earth who had no special laws or rules governing their, governing their behavior. To Europeans, in fact, it seemed that Brazilians were basically just able to do whatever they wanted. The Portuguese 17th century historian, Vicente do Salvador, remarked that Brazilians were, quote, only guided by their nature. Each one does what he wishes, unquote. Now, these beliefs are one thing, but this is compounded when the Portuguese start to understand the Tupi language. And the Tupi language, actually, there are no sounds in the Tupi language that correspond to the letters L, F, or R. Now, in the Portuguese language, um, L, F, and R uh, are the beginning syllables of the words lay, fe, and re, law, faith, and king. So, it was, if you're wondering, you know, how in the hell would it even be possible for a society to function if it functioned in the way that Europeans envisioned it to function, which is without law, faith, or rule? Um, well, a German gunner who served in the Portuguese service in the 16th century named Hans Staden actually explained how the Tupi justice system worked. Quote, when someone kills or injures one of them, their friends and family get together and kill that one, unquote. But Staden went on to say, within the village level, these populations of about 3,000 people living in seven houses, quote, this never happens, unquote. When fights broke out, people just let the two parties fight. If injuries occurred, the friends and family would repay those injuries on the perpetrator. But on the whole, Staden reported that life within the Tupi village was far more peaceful than European society with its many more rules. Now, to early European observers, the Tupi lived with an astonishing degree of, quote, love, mutual aid, and solidarity, unquote, according to John Thornton. Now, this was not the case, though, clearly not the case, for the relationships between the Tupi and those living outside of that village. Continuing to quote Thornton, the Tupis, quote, felt an implacable hatred for those they perceived as their enemies who lived farther away from them. In the absence of any authority to pronounce final resolution on disputes, especially ones involving the spilling of blood, and with the lack of community pressure, inter-village disputes could only be resolved by war. Unquote. Now, that meant that the Tupi were virtually in, always involved. They, there was incessant wars of revenge going on that over time cycled upwards with ever more, quote, ever more grisly revenges exacted and demanded, unquote. Over time, in fact, revenge became the central element to what we would call Tupi foreign policy. And over time, the urge to satiate this revenge created more and more horrible ways of obtaining that revenge until at some point, some Tupi-speaking person, probably long ago, came up with the ultimate revenge. That being killing and eating your enemy. When the Tupi took prisoners in war, they taunted and tortured them until they were eventually eaten. Though it might be 
quite some time before the sentence was carried out, to be honest. Typically, it occurred in a ceremony, with the entire village participating in order to humiliate the victim in his homeland. Now, as crazy as this might sound to us, there was even a part of this ceremony where the victim, before he died, got to trash talk his captors who were about to kill and eat him. The victim of this ceremony gave a final prayer stating that he would be avenged. And so the person who was about to be eaten basically gleefully got to state to the villagers who had been torturing him that his relatives would be exacting a more gruesome revenge on them for this act. Hans Staden, the German gunner, said the Tupi did not eat people out of hunger. They did so out of hatred and revenge. Now, the importance of cannibalism in Brazilian society horrified Europeans. But it also kept their attention glued to the region. Now, not all tribes in Brazil practiced cannibalism, but many did. A more common differentiation between the tribes, according to João Capistrano de Abreu anyway, was, quote, some tribes ate their enemies, others ate their friends and relatives. That is the main difference, unquote. The Tupi kept prisoners for months in a combination role of guest and village. Of, uh, in, a co in a combination role of guest and villager, excuse me. Hans Staden was captured in the 1550s, and he was held in a village for months. Uh, one day, when he was uh, one day, on a fishing expedition, his captors encountered more Christians. These were uh, ha actually half Portuguese, half Tupi Indians, and they were Christians. A battle ensued. One of the Christians was wounded badly, and he was at once cooked and eaten. Staden tried to intervene on behalf of the others, so that they avoided the same fate. He begged the Tupi chieftain uh, who had captured him, his name was Konyan Bebe, not to eat his prisoners. Stalin argued that even animals did not eat their own species. That's not exactly true, uh, but it was worth a shot. Konyan Bebe replied by taking a bite out of some of the dried human flesh he had at his disposal and replying to Stadin, quote, I am a jaguar. It tastes good, unquote. On the day of a prisoner's death, the village would brew beer for maize, and a great celebration took place. A ceremonial club was used for the death blow, delivered from behind. Before that happened, as I, I stated, the victim was taunted, or excuse me, before that happened, the victim was taunted by the village's women. Quote, the women run around mocking him and boasting that they will eat him. Then they make a fire some two paces from the victim, which he has to tend. After this, a woman brings the club, waving the tassels in the air, shrieking with joy, and running to and fro before the prisoner so that he can see it. Next, a warrior designated as the executioner appeared before the victim. His arms and face were dyed red. And he addressed the victim thusly, I am he that will kill you, since you and your people have slain and eaten many of my friends. The prisoner replied, believe it or not, quote, When I am dead, I shall still have to avenge my death 
unquote. Steden reports that after this ceremonial statement of revenge, the slayer strikes from behind and beats out his brains. The women seize the body at once and carry it to the fire. They come forward with hot water that they have ready, rub and scald the dead body, remove the outer skin, and leave it as white as our cooks know how to do with a suckling pig ready to roast. They then take this poor body, cleave it, and instantly cut it into pieces, faster than any butcher in our country could dismember a sheep. They cut off the head and give it to the executioner. They take the guts and give them to the women, which they, after which they joint him, joint by joint, first hands, then elbows, and so all the body. After which they send to every house a piece. Then they all fall a-dancing, and all the women make great store of wine. The next day they boil every joint in a great pot of water, because their wives and children might eat the broth. For the space of three days they do nothing but dance and drink day and night." Unquote. It's quite a ceremony, huh? Stodden reported that everything was eaten except the brain. But the executioner did not eat. He instead added the victim's name to his own, and kept the skull as a trophy. Leg and arm bones ended up as flutes, teeth were strung into necklaces, and as you might imagine, a society like this, so focused on revenge and cannibalism, war was just the central part of Tupi life, just about. Leaders were elected by a council. That council was comprised of the older male heads of household, and these leaders of Tupi society were differentiated basically only in that they were the greatest warriors of the village. Um, some of the most influential people were jewelry, and the principal men might have upwards of 13 or 14 wives, instead of just one, like most Tupi men. So clearly there is a, was a social structure within Tupi life. It's just that nobody was born with the right to have 14 wives. It was just something a Tupi man was going to have to accomplish all on his own merits, and by merits I mean killing and capturing enemies and being a ladies' man. But... The village was not the end of authority. Various Tupi villages sometimes confederated into alliances that went to war together, and these would be led by a war chief, who likewise would be elected by the various councils of the alliance. The, uh, these elections just completely bamboozled European attempts to really understand the society and, better, and culture better. Now, in contrast, say the Spanish understood Taino society very well, because the Taino were ruled by a cacique, who got there by being born into the role. The Nitainos were the equivalent of Spanish nobility, also born into the role. Amongst the Caribs, the Tupi-Guarani and the Gi-speaking people of Brazil, something very different was going on. What we would call a meritocracy. And beyond that, one with a kind of a system of a, of a small-arm Republican-style rule. So on the one hand, Tupi life was so shocking and appalling to Europeans, since they killed and ate people on a regular basis, that they could not look away. But, you know, don't forget, though, that European life was filled with torturous ways of dying. I mean, nobody got eaten very often. But, and so while the shock and awe of learning that cannibals were real might have attracted eyes and ears to hear about the Tupi, what really kept those eyes and ears engaged was that a lot of the other parts of Tupi life were just straight up seductive 
the Europeans. And I mean, especially those not at the top of society. To a lot of people in Europe, TV life sounded magical. They had no bosses, no masters, no priests, no kings. Hell, they didn't even wear clothes. They didn't work for others. They hunted and farmed and fished as they pleased. They weren't spat upon by their upper-class neighbors because they were of a lower social class. They came home to a shared house each night to a loving community where each individual man had a voice and a vote. He could decide his community leadership. Not Tupi women, mind you. Tupi society was just as sexist, I think, as European society in many ways. Guy villages were on the interior, and they were even more spread out. And so when Europeans start venturing into the interior and meeting the Guy, they, they seem even more free than the Tupi. Now, Brazilian freedom in part kept Europeans from being able to colonize Brazil for a long time after it was first quote-unquote discovered. Now, in the Caribbean, in Central America, um, later in Mexico and Peru, I mean, the, the Taino, Chibchab, and these other people that live in hierarchical societies, the Spanish just kind of tap into this. The, uh, the Spanish essentially are able to replace the top level of leadership in a lot of parts of, uh, of Central America and South America and take advantage of pre-existing systems of labor and taxation. Um, those already existed in the, in the Taino and Chibcham societies that we've talked about. But the Tupi and Gi-speaking peoples of Brazil, they're not going to put up with any of that nonsense. They were only going to be put to work if they were paid for it, or if they were enslaved. Now, combined with the fact that they didn't wear gold and silver jewelry, well... There's a big couple of reasons as to why Brazil was free from a lot of European colonial interest for about 50 years after it was discovered. Now, with that said, the fact that Brazilians had no experience working for a boss didn't mean that they didn't work. On the contrary, João de Abreu tells us, quote, they were not short on artistic talent, which they revealed in their ceramics, their weaving, their painted gourds, masks, body decorations, dances, and songs, unquote. In addition, Brazilian villages moved regularly. The Amazon had no llamas, no guinea pigs, and the numerous river systems flooded it regularly enough, and the weak soils of the forest were easily depleted. Well, all of that incentivized Brazilians to not stay in one place for too long. Every few years, they uprooted themselves from their villages and built new ones following game or fire-rejuvenated plots of land for new plantings. They were not tied to the land of nobles like so many Europeans were, and forbidden from hunting game in the Lord's Forest. During the first 30 years after the quote-unquote discovery of Brazil, Portuguese and other European sailors who came there only really stopped to visit the coast. They wanted to trade with locally produced hardwoods, not to settle, largely. Trade between the Tupi and Gi-speaking peoples of Brazil and Europeans grew during the first 30 years of the, of, the, of the 1500s. Now, the primary items of trade were steel tools, like axes, in exchange for dyewood, which 
The steel tools made it easier for the Tupi to cut down the massive trees, and at the same time gave them something very valuable, not previously at their disposal. And so the Tupi were very willing to travel sometimes considerable distances with, um, with heavy logs on their shoulders in order to obtain um, European goods. One Portuguese ship's log in 1511 gives an idea of the, of the scale of the early trade. Uh, that ship returned to Lisbon with 5,000 pounds of Brazil wood logs, along with a few other exotic and tropical goods that made up Brazil's exports. Um, Portugal claimed a monopoly on this trade, but frankly, no other European nations were really interested in staying out of Brazil just because the Portuguese king said so. And considering how gigantic Brazil is, it was basically impossible for the Portuguese to keep other Europeans out. And so that's the way the early Atlantic traffic went, with a steady trickle of trip, uh, with a steady trickle of ships, yeah, seeking Brazil wood and other rare commodities in Brazil, and exchanging them for items like steel tools. Now during this time, European merchants were generally on their best behavior, uh, what with their dependency on Indian help, and not to mention some of the larger confederations of villages could actually field rather large armies of warriors, which could be brought to bear upon the Europeans. So on the one hand, trade between Europe and Brazil was entirely possible without Europeans traveling in big boats across the Atlantic. On the other hand, this new trade depended entirely upon the Brazilians. It was their labor, which felled the hardwoods, and cut them into logs, and then transported those logs, sometimes for miles, to the ships. And it was the lands of these Brazilian tribes which produced the trees in the first place. One observer recorded, quote, The ships are sometimes far from the place where the cutting is done, perhaps four or five leagues. The only profit that these poor people derive from so much effort might be some miserable shirt or the lining of some clothing of little value. After they've carried the logs to those ships, during several journeys, you see their shoulders all bruised and torn by the weight of the wood, which is well known to be heavy and massive. This is hardly surprising, since they are naked and carry these loads so far, yet they consider themselves very fortunate to do this service for the Christians whom they love, cherish, and honor, because they showed them the way to cut wood with iron, in which they supply them." Unquote. Metal axes and tools were miracles to Brazilians. They were very skilled artisans, but they frankly took them a very long time to make anything without metal. And Brazil is also very beautiful. Now, to early European observers, it was really just kind of a place of wonder. Um, the Portuguese historian of the 16th century, Pero de Margelis, wrote, quote, The aspect of the province is very delectable and refreshing to a great de degree. It is always green with the same temperature of spring and April that April and May offer us here in Portugal, unquote. Yet, despite that fact, quote, one is never aware of excessive cold or heat. Brazil contained also, quote, an infinite number of springs, the waters of which form many great rivers which flow into the ocean. Um... Now, the largest and most important for the Portuguese were the Amazon, the Maranjo, the São Francisco, and the Rio de, uh, Rio de Prata. Um, just, just for your information. The idyllic landscape, though, that combined with kind of the what appeared to Europeans to be an idyllic lifestyle, uh, minus the cannibalism, and that sort of combined. Um, and that's basically where the myth of the noble savage comes from. Basically, instead of kind of 
Europeans weren't able to see the truth that Brazil... Brazilians just kind of lived in a very different kind of civilization. They had vastly different laws and social customs. Um, instead, they kind of envisioned Brazil as being a place without civilization, if that makes any sense at all. Um, anyway, I've been using, using European a lot more than I've been using Portuguese so far in this episode, and that's very purposeful. Uh, I mentioned before that the Spanish conquest was an international venture from the beginning. I mean, Christopher Columbus was Genoese. Amerigo Vespucci is from Florence. Um, according to Bailey, Diffie, and George Winaeus, who, uh, Portugal had a thriving Italian community um, that dated all the way back to the 13th century, mainly consisting of Genoese and Florentines like Columbus and Vespucci. Uh, the Italians in Portugal settled there originally um, with experience, expertise in shipping. By the 16th century, they'd obtained a lot of wealth as a result. And these Portuguese Italians, so long as they were proper Catholics, had all the same rights to own property, bear arms, and obtain redress in Portuguese courts as any other Portuguese subject. And in the 14th century, the Portuguese crown additionally gave some Italian merchant families special trading rights. They had the right to trade between Portugal and their home territories, as well as Portuguese possessions. Over time, in fact, many more Europeans obtained very similar deals uh, from the Portuguese monarchy. In particular, merchants from Flemings and, uh, and France got involved in the Portuguese trade as well. Uh, Fleming, Flemish people, by the way, is that's where the modern-day state of Belgium is, by the way. In case you were like me when you heard Flemings and you were like, what the heck? Hell is that? By the end of the 15th century, German banking houses, the Welser, Fugger, and Hochstetter banks, made major investments in the growing Portuguese mercantile empire. And what all of these foreign merchants did for Portugal was basically provide extra capital and credit that a small and new nation with a very tiny population had in comparison to its rivals needed. Uh, basically, suddenly, with these investments... Portugal had the money and manpower needed to expand trade across Africa, Asia, and Brazil. Um, now, similarly, European merchants wanting to trade overseas kind of needed the Portuguese, or the Spanish for that matter. Frankly, no other European nations were better suited to helping merchants transport goods across the ocean. Now, I mean, if you haven't, Check out my opening series, Rise of the Conquistadors, if you want to hear more info on the history of Portuguese and Spanish conflict with Muslims. But suffice to say, the Portuguese and Spanish conquistadors had learned a great deal about brutality during the Middle Ages. And up into the 16th century, uh, you know, in a nutshell, basically, these, these conquistadors from Portugal and Spain uh, had far more experience in war than other folk in Europe as, as a result of their fighting the, the Reconquista and uh, in the Mediterranean and in, in Morocco. And, and, and the real advantage um, they had uh, was in the number of and quality of their warships. Uh, these are the, this is the most advanced kind of military technology of the 16th century. And, and to be fair, it wasn't really just the technology itself. It, it wasn't that Portugal and Spain made boats that other people couldn't make. It was the engineering. 
Um, all over the world, sailing ships existed, generally as freight vessels. They were bulky, uh, used for transporting commodities like of low value, like grain, lumber, and dried fish. The Portuguese added more masts and smaller sails to these round sailing vessels, and then they also started constructing them with more elongated hulls. That sped them up quite a bit. And they started adding cannon to them. Now, technically, the Portuguese learned this from Christian and Muslim pirates, the, the corsairs of the Mediterranean. Lots of pirates were putting a cannon or two on their sailing vessels if they had the money. But ever since the days of Henry the Navigator, Portuguese warships were constructed with 30 or 40 guns on average. And the Portuguese built a lot of them with rows of embrasures on both sides of their vessels, guns filled with grape shot on the decks to attack any potential attackers, even on the stern and forecastle, there was plenty of firepower. The Portuguese ships basically functioned as seafaring human porcupines. Hell, the Portuguese even started mounting bombards into the hulls of their caravels. The only European nation at the end of the 15th century with anything even close to such a powerful fleet was Spain. The Portuguese and Spanish crowns were some of the very best customers of the bronze cannon industry that existed both in Germany and Portugal. Bronze cannons are the very best. They're also very expensive. And so if they didn't... Uh, so cheaper were cast iron guns. They were heavier and more prone to explode or crack. And they were still used by the Portuguese en masse to supplement a ship's artillery. The Portuguese were even fond of building primitive breech-loading cannons that were made by uh, uh, with iron rods that were annealed around a cylindrical core of wood. And these were generally used as swivel guns and mounted onto the railings of a ship. Um, some of them fired stone balls, other cast iron balls, and they were small crude, and, quote, none set records for safety, unquote. Um, and barring an unfortunate explosion, uh, it was basically possible for a Portuguese carav caravel to issue, for issue forth a deadly, continuous fire on other ships or coastal targets from any direction, or even every direction. Now, to put this into context of the Indian Ocean, where a lot of these Portuguese vessels are going to end up trying to go, many Muslim or Hindu ships were of similar design to these European sailing vessels. But they were put together using lashings instead of nails. Well, that saves your money. You don't have to buy the iron, which was a rare commodity in Southeast Asia. And never mind having 40 cannon on a single sailing vessel. The Indian Ocean didn't have the same recent history of states warring against each other as the Mediterranean did. And using naval power as it existed in the Mediterranean as a result just wasn't really a thing going on. And so few people in the Indian Ocean even seriously armed their, their sailing vessels except for pirates. Naval power in the Indian Ocean, and in fact in most of the world, was exercised with galleys. Galleys are much faster than sailing ships. A galley full of 80 or 100 men is a dangerous thing. Uh, but 
They can fit far fewer artillery pieces on them than a sailing vessel, and the main tactic of a galley is to ram a ship and board it. Now, the Portuguese and sailing ships by the 15th century, by the end of the 15th century, I should say, were so full of firepower that they could just dominate these more poorly constructed ships in the Indian Ocean. And, and even the tactic of galleys, still, still very popular in the Mediterranean, um, ramming a ship and boarding it was made very difficult and dangerous by the fact that the Portuguese could simply fire shitloads of grape shot at anyone who tried to do that. Um, so that really explains Portuguese naval superiority at this point of time. And, and basically, the, the Spanish Navy is quickly catching up. Um, now, as for the British, French, Dutch, and other European shipping industries, well, they really aren't all that far behind the Spanish and the Portuguese either. But really, to be honest, in, in the first half of the 16th century, I, I, I think it's fair to say that Spain and Portugal by far have more powerful navies than their rivals. Anyway, I, I know I'm getting a little carried away there with the ships. I don't want to lose the point about how really important internationalism is um, associated with the Portuguese and Spanish colonialism. Um, because that's exactly how Amerigo Vespucci fits into our story. Now, I know I've talked about him before. He's a liar. Um, and he is a, he. well, I've, I've mentioned he's a liar because he is a liar. He's one of the most infamous liars in history. But nevertheless... Vespucci plays a pivotal role in plays a pivotal, excuse me, role in our story. Amerigo was born in Florence, Italy, in 1451, making him four years younger than Columbus. His father was a public notary, and his uncle was a Dominican monk, and between the two of them, he received a very good education. Amerigo then, quote, embraced a mercantile life at Florence, unquote, and eventually found employment with the infamous House of Medici. The Medici sent Vespucci to Seville, since, quote, the house had transactions in Spain and required experienced agents, unquote. Excuse me. Afterwards, another Italian merchant named Gianotto Berardi promptly died. And so Vespucci was asked to finish up Berardi's affairs, which included a contract that he had to supply the Council of the Indies with 12 vessels of 900 tons each. And this contract was left incomplete at the time of Berardi's death. Vespucci took over in 1495, and he finished transporting the remaining vessels of the contract to the Caribbean which made that his first voyage across the Atlantic, albeit one where he did absolutely zero discovery. Vespucci spent the next few years engaged as a provisions contractor in Spain's colonial enterprises, and he made a fortune while doing so. Um, at the very least, he made 10,000 Maravedis in 1496 as payment of sailors' wages. Vespucci was probably responsible for supplying two of Columbus's voyages with men. Um, and Columbus spoke very highly of him uh, seven years later, uh, calling him an hombre de muy, de muy de bien, a very good man, if your Spanish is muy mal. And nobody knows exactly why Vespucci determined to retire from business and just go to sea uh, in, uh, in 1499. He, he was almost 50 years old at that point. 
and uh, I, I suppose he probably just wanted to retire from the business, but not retire from life. Um, and anyway, that's how he managed to sail out with one Alonso de Ojeda, who we've spoken of previously and who needed money to make a voyage. Las Casas believed that as... And, and, and anyway, Las Casas believed that um, because Ojeda needed so much money, Vespucci was taken board uh, as a merchant who probably contributed to the expenses of the ship. And maybe because of his theoretical knowledge of cosmography. Now, Vespucci was a talented writer. Um, Clements Markham... Uh, the uh, almost his biographer, um, says he was perhaps probably also a very great conversationalist. Um, he enjoyed you know putting classical references in his writing, which something that made his contemporaries, you know, uh, 16th century uh, Europeans um, really, you know, that that was kind of a mark of knowledge. And it probably gave a lot of people the belief, that Vespucci might have possessed knowledge that he didn't. Um, he was believed to be a great pilot and navigator by a lot of people who actually, in fact, should have known better. But Vespucci's talent for writing and probably for speaking made him sound like an expert. Now, he did. Vespucci did have a smattering of knowledge about navigation, um, he had taken one or two voyages across the Caribbean delivering ships. He owned a book on astronomy, and he liked to talk up his prowess on the use of uh, instruments like the astrolabe and the quadrant and the sea charts. And he often writes disparagingly about other pilots of Spain who actually did know what they were talking about. And uh, this was enough for a lot of people to trust him. The reality is that any experienced mariners who examined his writings and viewed his quote-unquote calculations realized quickly that the Florentine contractor was a landlubber who had just enough knowledge to impress other landlubbers. Now, Vespucci really started making things up after he took a very real voyage with Alonso de Ojeda. Uh, I talked about that earlier in the series. Um, and at returning from this voyage, he moved to Portugal. And that's where he ended up taking one or two voyages there, which went to Brazil in 1501 and 1504. It's after this, his second voyage to Brazil, he wrote a letter, now infamous, containing an account of three voyages. Um, of his three voyages, 1499, 1501, and 1504, but in the letter, he turned those three voyages into four voyages. A made-up, gosh, sorry, I have the hiccups. An earliest, uh, the earliest um, of his voyages, the made-up one, now took place in 1497, which conveniently put Vespucci on the coastline of South America before Columbus managed to do so. Now, Vespucci sent out one copy of this letter to his lord, Piero Sodernini Medici. Medici and Vespucci were friends in school as children. And he sent another uh, a, a copy of the letter, a second copy of the letter, to another of his friends, the French Duke of Lorraine. Now, Vespucci, um, after he wrote those uh, letters, alleging four voyages, then left Portugal 
and returned to Spain. Now, you might wonder why Vespucci wasn't hated by Columbus at this point, but, well, Columbus didn't get to read Vespucci's letter. Uh, that went out to Vespucci's noble friends in France and Italy, mind you. Now, and these, those people, were people who had no real knowledge of what was going on in the Americas and were kind of desperate for that knowledge. Now, by this time, Columbus was laid up with illness. And when Vespucci returned to Spain, he went to visit the Almirante, another of his friend, and paid his respects. Columbus gave Vespucci a letter to give to his son. And in fact, the friendship between Columbus and Vespucci might even help explain a little bit how it was that Vespucci then obtained employment in Spain. I mean, other than the fact that it sounds he sounded like he knew, knew what he was talking about. But in 1508, Vespucci received the appointment of Chief Pilot of Spain. That came with a salary of 75,000 Maravedis a year. Now, this sounds a little crazy. But um, I'll remind you that Ferdinand and Fonseca tended to pit people in charge who they thought were loyal to them, not necessarily people who were good at their jobs. I mean, if you think that the... If you think the, the idea that America Vespucci would be teaching anyone in Spain how to pilot to America is strange, when they could have been learning from the likes of, say, Juan de la Cosa or Juan Diaz de Soles or Vicente Pinzon, who were all excellent pilots, um, who had much, much more experience than Vespucci, and in addition were Spanish. Well, you aren't wrong that that isn't a little bit strange. But frankly, on the other hand, Vespucci's appointment as chief pilot, kind of also falls in line with some of Ferdinand and Fonseca's other decisions, like sending Columbus home in chains, uh, beheading, le or letting uh, Pedrarius behead Vasco Nunez del Balboa, and entrusting commands to people like, you know, Pedrarius, or Avanda, or Bobadilla. And, and from that perspective, Vespucci's appointment kind of fits right in. At any rate, he, he held that position until 1512, when he died in Seville. Um, and essentially the big lie that Vespucci commits is that he writes letters where he turns Ojeda's voyage, his first of three, into two voyages, where he pre pretends to precede Columbus. Uh, and with that said, the issue isn't so much that Vespucci lies about discovering America, um, thus having it named after him and not Columbus. I guess the issue that I want to talk about is that that letter goes out to the Medicis, who, being rich and famous, spread it around Europe. And so Vespucci's lie was spread. Amerigo did not publish the letter in Spain. That would have been easily, he would have been easily discovered. Uh, it, it would have been a forgery. With, with, he made numerous errors in describing uh, things like latitude and longitude. And not to mention, he literally just took some of the real events from his voyage with Ojeda and simply... Uh, pretended that they happened on an imaginary earlier voyage. Now, incidentally, Vespucci claims to have navigated a route to the Americas that would have taken him across Mexico and into the Pacific Ocean through a strait which was thought by many to have existed at the time, but was very quickly realized imaginary. So here's the thing. I, I don't even actually know if Vespucci really intentionally did that. I mean, he wanted to fool his friends. And his friends happened to be very, very powerful nobles in Italy and France. And by the time that knowledge of Vespucci's lies reached Spain, he was already dead. But regardless of these falsehoods, 
He wrote well. And his stories about the New World made pretty much everyone who read them very enthusiastic about what would become America. Vespucci never asked anyone to name America after him. No, the other Europeans just did that all on their own after reading his descriptions of what he saw. And what Europe loved so much about Vespucci's description of the New World wasn't really so much that he, his claim that he was there first, but rather the skill with which he depicted what he saw. I mean, I'll put it to you this way. You can trust Americo Vespucci's writing about the New World about almost every subject. I mean, at any rate, I think that means that Vespucci has a more complicated role for history than that of simply a fraud. He knew he was committing a lie. But I don't think he knew the extent to which his lie was going to change the world. Dad said Vespucci was not the first person to discover Brazil. That honor actually goes to a Spanish person, Vincent Yanez Pinzon, who was earlier the captain of the Nina. And he was the only member of the Pinzon family not to mutiny against Columbus. And originally, he was supposed to voyage on a path which would have taken him to Brazil before Columbus got to what is now Venezuela. He was supposed to go to Brazil in 1495. But for whatever reason, that expedition, which was planned with two ships, and for which Pinzon received payment of 170,000 Maravedis from Bishop Fonseca, did not ever set sail. At any rate, uh, I don't know why, but Pinzon was then not sent out until three years later, this time with four caravels, setting sail on November 19, 1499, to the Cape Verde Islands, from there to a point farther south in the American side of the Atlantic than anyone from Europe who had ever voyaged before him. Now, there was actually a terrible storm that occurred, too, and that actually helped Pinzon's fleet cross the Atlantic so fast, in fact, that he crossed the Atlantic faster than anyone else would until the late 19th century, until someone beat his record in a steamship. So, I mean, Pinzon's voyage to Brazil must have been kind of terrifying, to be honest. Um, his fleet made the, a record crossing of the Atlantic in 20 days. That's where they started in Europe, and then 20 days later, they were somewhere on the Brazilian coastline, somewhere near Recife, probably. Uh, from there, he sailed west and northwest and slowly meandered his four caravel fleet towards the Gulf of Paria, which took Pinzon five months. Uh, Pinzon and his fleet saw the Amazon River along the way. He drank from it, though for your information, Pinzon was certain he was drinking from the Ganges. And his interpreters, however, couldn't find anyone who spoke Arabic. And perhaps as a result, this voyage didn't really initiate any sort of peaceful trading encounters. Instead, Pinzon recount, uh, met, quote, big men with grim faces of cruel aspect, unquote, who seemed, well, very threatening. In the skirmishes that followed the initial meeting between uh, Pinzon's fleet and the natives, eight Spaniards were killed, 26 native Brazilians were enslaved, along with a monkey, and Pinzon, on his return to Spain, uh, had 20 surviving slaves at that point with him and a cargo of, of Brazil wood and a monkey. The Spanish sent out a second voyage to Brazil the next year, uh, under the command of Alonso Velez de Mendoza, 
who went along with the Guerra brothers uh, on, a re- on this return voyage to Brazil. Um, they made their way to the Rio San Francisco uh, around Christmas Day of the year 1500 and promptly ended up getting into a very difficult uh, fight with the local Tupi natives. Um, several conquistadors on this expedition were killed, and um, the expedition really wasn't that productive. Uh, the survivors, in fact, uh, after a ba- after a battle where several of the conquistadors were killed, started to quarrel amongst themselves over who was going to get what dead man's share of the booty in Brazilwood and slaves. And uh, anyway, uh, a third voyage was sent out by the Spanish under the command of Diego de Lepe almost immediately after Pinzon had sailed. Um, de Lepe took uh, one or two caravels, it's not clear, to Brazil. He crossed the mouth of the Amazon and returned to Spain. We know very little, uh, to be honest, about de, Lepe, uh, de Lepe's voyage uh, or Mendoza's voyage. Um, Pinzon took uh, his final voyage in 1508 also to Brazil. Um, like a lot of those early Spanish voyages to Brazil, we don't know a lot about it. Historians who are not Portuguese generally believe that Pinzon managed to sail up the Amazon River on this voyage, making him the first European to traverse some distance up the river. Um, At any rate, he died in Spain in 1514. Now, by now, if you don't know any of the history of this, hopefully you're thinking, why, why are we talking about all these Spanish explorers, and yet Brazil becomes a Portuguese colony? Well, that's because between Pinzon's first voyage and Mendoza's voyage, the Portuguese also went to Brazil on accident. And at any rate, the reason Brazil became Portuguese Brazil was because of its this accidental quote-unquote discovery by Pedro Alvarez Cabral, who was on his way to India. Now, Cabral wasn't a salesman like, say, Vespucci. And in fact, Cabral didn't doesn't seem to have left a written report himself. So what we know about this voyage is that uh, it's from other letters that were written, from letters of others on the fleet. Uh, The most important being the letter of Pedro Vez de Camina, who wrote a report on Brazil which got sent back before Cabral's fleet departed for India. And uh, one other letter from someone else on the voyage who was known only as Master, uh, Master John, now, not all of the fleet, Cabral's fleet returned from India, and so uh, it's very possible that the reason that whoever Master John is is so mysterious is that uh, his letter survived, but he drowned. Um, anyway, additional information might be pieced together from a letter which Don, the king of Portugal, King Dom Manuel, wrote to Ferdinand and Isabella, which he wrote immediately after the return of the fleet. Um, Manuel was very forthright. Um, it seems, with uh, Ferdinand and Isabella about what occurred during the voyage. Copies of that letter exist in Portuguese, Spanish, and Italian, uh, and uh, the voyage was massively popular throughout Europe, uh, especially in Italy and France, and I mean not to mention Spain and Portugal. Venetian reports made after Cabral's return suggest that in Venice, people were aware enough of Brazil after Cabral's visit that they knew what his cargo was going to be, Brazil would namely. And within 20 years, accounts of Brazil were being circulated throughout Europe in Latin, German, Portuguese, Italian, Spanish, and French. And basically, they confirmed everything what Vespucci said. And some of what he said 
was, to put it mildly, salacious. Now, at any rate, before moving on from Cabral, he was born probably in 1476, and he was around 32 years old when he was selected as the captain of a fleet tasked with going to India. Cabral was about two years older than his king, Don Manuel, and since we don't have any records of Cabral taking any voyages previously to this one, and he didn't go on any voyages afterwards, it appears he was probably simply selected because he was Manuel's friend, and thus loyal. At any rate, Cabral served as a page in the court of uh, King John II, who was Don Manuel's father, and the two grew up together. So, despite having no qualifications whatsoever, Cabral was given the great honor of commanding one of the largest fleets ever assembled for the Atlantic. Don Manuel placed Pedro Alvarez Cabral in command of a fleet of 13 ships, and given the title of Capitan Moore, commander-in-chief in English, they left Portugal on March 9th in the year 1500. This was the largest and most important fleet to yet deport from Portugal. It was designed to take advantage of what Vasco da Gama had learned on his, quote, discovery of India. Remember, the Portuguese don't really have much of a technology advantage over their rivals, in the, the, the Arabs and the Hindus who are operating in the Indian Ocean. They have an engineering advantage. So the Portuguese understand that it's important um, for them to take advantage uh, uh, with to speedily prevent their Muslim enemies from arming a defense against them, and not to mention potentially allying with the Hindus against the Christians. So by 1500, uh, Portugal was ready to sail out again to India, and Cabral led 1500 soldiers, traders, and various other adventurers on a, with a, a wide range of merchandise and coins. Like I said, it was one of the largest fleets yet seen on the Atlantic. And, and it sailed basically with the dual purpose. Either the people of India were going to trade with the Portuguese on terms that the Portuguese considered fair, or they were going to blow the shit out of India. Now, on March 14th, the fleet made its way to the Canary Islands. And from there, they traversed west and made a long arc to go around the Horn of Africa. About a month later, on April 21st, the fleet encountered seaweed, which is a sign of land close by, and this was followed by bird sightings and finally a, quote, a great mountain, wide and high, and other low mountains to its south. The tall mountain was given the name of Mount Pascal, unquote. Mount Pascual in the state of Bahia, Brazil, can be spotted at sea from a distance of 60 miles. The fleet had accidentally sailed too far west. Nicolau Coelho, who had been on the fleet of Vasco da Gama's expedition and who would one day found a donatory captaincy, was sent ashore. He met people who he did not expect to meet. Their bodies were painted and tattooed. They were decorated with brilliant feathers. They were had all sorts of customs that seemed completely unlike what Coelho and the other Portuguese had expected to find in Africa or in fact, frankly, they were different customs than anything that they'd ever encountered before. Pedro Vaz de Camina wrote that as soon as Quelho went in a boat towards the shore, quote, men assembled on the shore by twos and threes, so that when the boat reached the mouth of the river, eighteen or twenty men were already there. They were dark and entirely naked, without anything to cover their shame. They carried in their hands bows with their arrows. All came boldly towards the boat, and Nicolau Coelho made a sign to them that they should lay down their bows, 
and they laid them down. They proceeded to trade even though they could not speak to one another. According to Quelho, because the breaking of the waves against the shore made such a roaring sound, it drowned out speech. But perhaps that was just his explanation for his bewilderment at having not met Africans. Quelho gave one of the Brazilians two hats, a red linen beret which he was wearing, and a black hat which he had also come ashore with, or perhaps was being worn by one of the other sailors. One of the Brazilians responded by giving Quelho, quote, a hat of long feathers with a little tuft of red and gray feathers like those of a parrot, unquote. Oops. And another gave him a large string of very small white beads. There's my unquote. The Portuguese hoped these were pearls, but it turned out the Brazilians made their jewelry out of shells and bone and wood. The fleet didn't linger in one spot. It meandered along the coast for some time. Probably while Cabral decided exactly what to do with the fact that there was a completely unexpected, gigantic landmass before him inhabited by strange people who might have been even more unexpected than the landmass. Remember, Cabral was no navigator, but he, he was chosen because he was the king's friend. and He didn't necessarily have any desire to go exploring. And so the Portuguese fleet actually ended up staying only nine days on Brazil's coastline. Pedro Vaz de Camina made observations during those nine days that were sent back on the store ship. Cabral sent back to Portugal, bringing news back of Brazil. And Camina was a well-educated, and he goes into great length about the manners and customs of Brazilian people. Um, at any rate, he tells us that eventually Cabral did find a suitable harbor, which he named Porto Seguro, Portuguese for safe harbor. Cabral was... Careful, at that point, not to let all of his men just simply wander off offshore. But on two occasions, he allowed groups of 20 or 30 men to, quote, make merry, unquote, with the tupi, as well as load wood onto the ships and swap merchandise from macaws and other tropical birds. In addition, Cabral entertained a delegation of tupi dignitaries. He formally uh, received the tupi and was dressed to the nines to do so, you could say. He, he wore a gold collar, Cabral did, and was in full dress, seated on a chair in the, on the quarter deck of his flagship when he greeted the tupi, tupi delegation. And out of a desire to appear generous and neighborly, the Portuguese attempted to feed the tupi, but the stale hardtack and other whatever horrifying foods they had on the ships wasn't very in, much enjoyed by their guests. On the other hand, the Tupi dignitaries enjoyed the wine offered enough that they eventually simply began to stretch out, yawn, and fall asleep. Stark naked right there on the deck of the ship, mind you. This really shocked the Portuguese sailors who hurried to provide some blankets. Small groups of visitors went to continue to visit with the Indians after that, amongst them uh, Diago Diaz, the brother of the famous Bartolomeo Diaz, who we I, I talked about in my series Rise of the Conquistadors. Diago went ashore with a bagpipe player. The two men accompanied an Indian dance. Diago participated in the dance, quote, taking them by the hands and they were delighted and laughed, unquote. The Tupi were apparently especially appreciated of Diago's solo performance, wherein he took, quote, many light turns and a remarkable leap which astonished them, unquote. Must have been quite the dancer. Diaz spent the night in a hammock in the village, which was about five miles from the shore. 
Now, the only thing Cabral knew for certain at this point about this very strange place was that he was going to claim it for Portugal and his king, Dom Manuel. He took possession of the land via what amounts to basically a magical incantation, the Requimiento. Now, obviously, the Tupi did not understand what the Requimiento uh, meant, but to complete the Requimiento, two carpenters constructed a gigantic cross and set it in the earth. The Tupi quickly gathered around, full of curiosity. Pedro Vaz de Camina tells us, quote, Many of them came there to be with the carpenters. I believe they did this more to see the iron tools with which these were making it than to see the cross itself, unquote. Cabral named his possession Terra de Veracruz. Obviously, he did not ask the Tupi about whatever they called it, and he didn't really explore the coast much. He didn't learn whether or not, in fact, he'd stumbled upon an island or a mainland, but he was very interested in taking possession of it for his king, whatever it was. Cabral and the other Portuguese were also interested in dressing the Tupi, who could not have cared less for the fabrics that they kept being presented with, Cabral sent two visitors ashore wearing new shirts, red hats, and rosaries, but they returned nude. During the construction of the cross, one young Tupi woman stayed throughout the entire mass. Her nudity during the church service so disturbed the sailors that she, quote, was given a cloth with which to cover herself, and we put it about her. But as she sat down, she did not think too much to cover herself, unquote. Since the fleet was already on a venture to India, though, um, in, with, with uh, trade on their mind, the Tupi and the Portuguese engaged in quite a bit of commerce in just the nine days that the fleet lingered. Uh, Camhina tells us that the Indians traded some bows for sheets of paper or some worthless old cap or anything else. A good 20 or 30 of our people went with them to a place containing many more of them, including girls and women. They brought back many bows and headdresses of birds' feathers, some green and some yellow, and according to those who went there, they made merry with them. Well, the fleet did not stay long, but there was plenty of time for making money. Cabral also filled his ships with dyewood logs from the numerous Brazil wood trees that were on the store, and then eventually, though, they took sail. Um, Camina reported that to be helped, gathering the Brazil wood, they say. Quote, they loaded as much as the wood as they could, very willingly, and carried it to the boats, unquote. Now, on his, on his final action in Brazil, Cabral, on May 2nd, just before leaving, sent ashore two frightened Portuguese criminals to stay behind and gave them the task of civilizing the Tupi. The men were consoled by the locals, who seemed to understand their plight, that they were being left behind, and felt badly for them as they cried and watched their countrymen sail off. Now, on the other hand, to these two crying men, Camina also reported that two other seamen just simply fled the ship in a skiff. And that shows the, just the, the range of reactions that Europeans had to America. Here we have two men who were frightened for their lives. Two others saw a chance to escape. Cabral set sail for India, which isn't really part of our story today, though just for your information, he arrived in Calicut in September of the year 1500. He returned to Lisbon with what remained of his fleet in July 1501. 
Six of his ships at that point had been lost to the sea, uh, but what remained were full of Asian spices. Samuel Eliot Morrison is the author of The European Discovery of America, wrote the following. Quote, Pedro Alvarez Cabral died in 1530 and was buried in Santorum. He was a great seaman and an important discoverer, even though his discovery was accidental. He must have been a good leader of men, because he was never troubled by insubordination or mutiny, unquote. At any rate, the return ship brought back the first reports about Brazil, um, also immediately prompted new questions, like, who are Brazilian Indians? Where is Brazil? What size of a landmass are we talking about here? And none of those questions were very easy for the Portuguese to answer at first. I mean, seriously, they were super not easy to answer. In part, this was for the same reasons that Columbus became so confused when he reached the Southern Hemisphere. I mean, none of the stars in the sky were right, as far as European navigators were concerned in the Southern Hemisphere. And in the equator, a navigator's instruments gave incorrect measurements because of the bulge of the Earth's Excuse me, of the bulge of the Earth's crust. And even these, this uncertainty you know, also raised other important questions throughout Europe. Like, who did Brazil belong to? I mean, the Spanish had gotten there first. But the Portuguese had claimed it. And the reason that they get away with doing that is the Treaty of Tordesillas, which basically was you know, Spain agreeing to give the part of the world which Brazil belonged to to Portugal. It didn't really help Spain's case that Pinzon, um, their captain, later testified that his quote-unquote discoveries were on the, you know, he admitted this in testimony, that his discoveries were on the Portuguese side of the line. Now, ultimately, though, what probably truly settled things is that the Spanish simply became very distracted in Mexico and Peru, looking for gold and silver. And so Brazil was just largely left to the Portuguese. At any rate, the Portuguese were keen on returning to Brazil. Dom Manuel sent out a return fleet the next year after receiving Caminha's report. And this fleet actually encountered the returning Cabral in Senegal at what is now the city of Dakar. Cabral's fleet on their way back to Portugal from India. The Brazil fleet was commanded by Nicolo Coelho who took some time mapping Brazil's coastline this time. In all, this voyage journeyed something like 2,500 miles of coastline, and amongst the crew of this return voyage was a certain Amerigo Vespucci, making a very real voyage to Brazil. Now, as I said earlier, after Vespucci returns from this voyage, um, but another two, two more voyage. He begins splicing his voyages into into extra ones that predates uh, his first. Um, but believe it or not, what's really much more important than the date that he claims all of this happened is what he writes about Brazil and Brazilians. I mean, frankly, Vespucci's lies were about his own importance, or the, regarding the, his necessity aboard the fleet. Um, and his specific geographical and nautical knowledge, he just kind of makes up longitude and latitude in his letters because he's a fraud, and he's not a great navigator. But he wrote convincingly, and when he wasn't talking about what he was doing, when he was instead talking about Brazil and Brazilians, what he wrote was accurate. And what he wrote 
fascinated Europe. And even though Dom Manuel was disappointed that no gold or silver was discovered, a lot of Europeans became obsessed with Brazil. I mean, Vespucci offered Europe a glimpse into a foreign world. Coelho sent ashore two soldiers, two sailors, when they first arrived at Brazil. Excuse me. Five days later, those two sailors had not returned. But a crowd of girls and women had gathered at the harbor's edge, close to the Portuguese caravels. So, Coelho sent one of his young and handsome sailors ashore. The sailor was admired, touched by the women, and he undoubtedly expected himself to be at the center of some sort of epic orgy. But instead, Vespucci finishes this tale by writing, quote, a stout wench, armed with a great club, crept up behind him and killed him with one blow, unquote. Native archers appeared out of the bush. They started shooting flights of arrows at the Portuguese, while the women dragged the sailor by the feet to a nearby hill. They roasted him on the spot and ate him in plain view of his horrified shipmates. Vespucci writes that they could hardly believe it. And he could also hardly believe that Quelho, fearful of a further trap, didn't order a counterattack, but instead sailed on. Eventually, he reached Porto Seguro, where they found the two convicts left there by Cabral the year before, who were very grateful to still be alive, I'm sure, though incidentally they had not managed to civilize Brazil to Portuguese standards, I'm sure you're aware. Now, if you're thinking that Europeans found accounts of cannibalism horrifying, you're correct. But if you think that cannibalism was the only thing that the very sensational Vespucci was writing about, you're wrong. He mentioned that Brazilian women, quote, being very lustful, enjoyed applying poison to their husbands' penises to make them swell up, which the women loved even if this bizarre method of penile enhancement could occasionally result in the deaths of their husbands. Now, this was scandalous enough, to which Vespucci added, Quote, son cohabits with mother, brother with sister, and, quote, urged by excessive lust, unquote, the Brazilian women forced themselves on the male Portuguese sailors. Well, I'm sure were trying, I'm sure they were trying their best to behave themselves around the naked women. But beyond just the sensationalism, Vespucci was clear that Brazil was not some little island in the ocean like Hispaniola but instead, quote, what we may rightly call a new world, more densely peopled and abounding in animals, and in addition with clime milder and a more delightful than any other region, unquote. Sure, he was full of shit about getting there first, but all of his really wild stories were true, uh, even if uh, <laughs> his incestual uh kind of overtones to everybody living together um, had more to do with his judging them of being naked than the truth of everybody banging each other. But at any rate, his account went like wildfire through Europe. When a map maker named Martin Waldseemuller um, read it and was about to put a map out of the New World called the Mundus Novus, um, this was copied and recopied so quickly um, that by the time Waldsey Mueller realized his error, his name for what the New World was, America, 
had been published in Latin, Italian, French, German, Flemish, and even Czech. Nobody even questioned Vespucci being first until 1515. That's when John Cabot realized that Vespucci was full of shit and called him out. Las Casas did the same shortly afterwards, and before long everybody knew the truth. But by that point, Amerigo was dead, and America was here to stay. Anyway, after Quelho's fleet returned, the Portuguese crown started leasing land in Brazil on three-year terms. The leasees agreed to send out six ships a year, explore 300 leagues, and to set up and maintain one fortress. These lessees planned on making money with Brazil wood, exotic animals, and slaves, and further hoped to find a passage to India. In 1503, an expedition of six ships sent out for Brazil, though we don't know what really a whole lot about it. Uh, three of them, though, were wrecked off the island, now known as Fernão de Noronha, and that initial uh, lease failed to make as very much profit as a result. Now, according to Abreu, the lack of ports, the sailing difficulties, uh, owing to the prevailing winds and the sterile impression of the land, doomed the expedition to failure, but I suspect it was the shipwreck. Um, at any rate, in 1506, a new lease was granted to Fernão de Noronha and other, quote, new Christians, unquote, meaning that Noronha was a converso. Now, this lease resulted in profit. Noronha bought back 20,000 quintas of redwood per year on average, which he sold for roughly two and a half ducats per quintal. Now, the cost of the lease was 4,000 ducats, so let's do some math here. That's roughly 50,000 ducats per 20,000 quintas of redwood at a cost of 4,000 ducats. So in Three years, Noronha spent 12,000 ducats and profited 138,000 ducats. And that, in a nutshell, is why people from Europe were so interested in getting in dangerous boats and sailing off to far-off lands. The 16th century Portuguese historian Pero de Magelas wrote in 1576, quote, And so, little by little, the country was explored, and more was learned about it until finally the country was divided into captaincies and settled in the way it is today, unquote. In 1511, the Portuguese crown ended the lease system, and thus anyone who wanted to go to Brazil could do so in exchange for paying one-fifth of whatever was brought back to the Portuguese crown. One group of merchants who tried their luck with this new policy equipped a ship named the Britoa with a uh, we have records of this ship. Uh, they employed a captain, scribe, boatswain, and the pilot as officers. Uh, these men commanded 14 seamen, an additional 14 deckhands for servants, and uh, I'm sorry, there was also a supply officer. The crew was allowed to bring their own items, such as knives and scissors, which they could trade for slaves and exotic animals, but they were strictly forbidden from selling arms of war. Uh, when the Bratoa or other Portuguese vessels brought cargo ashore to Brazil, they did so at one of the small, small forts that had been built during the lease period. The Portuguese called these forts feitorias, Portuguese for factory. They were run by a factor, what the Portuguese called a feitor. The feitoria system was developed in the 15th century when the Portuguese began colonizing islands in the Atlantic and off the, off the coast of Africa, which, incidentally like I've uh, so many other things. This is a story I told in my first series, Rise of the Conquistadors. 
The Feitor of the Portuguese outpost, the Feitoria, had a lot of authority. So when the Bratoa arrived on Brazil's coastline, all cargo, uh, basically all the cargo was unloaded and sold under the authority of the Feitor. Now I don't have specific details for what Feitoria, the Bratoa, arrived at or who the Feitor was. But it was probably either Bartolomeo Marcioni, Benedito Morelli, Fernão de Noronha, or Francisco Martins. Those were the Portuguese merchants who João Capistrano de Abreu names as being the principal men who were financing the early Brazilian expeditions. The Feitor was charged, basically, with making sure that the Portuguese sailors and conquistadors weren't trying to uh, cheat the natives or, ens- uh, or enslave people you know, from allied tribes, or at least not too much, because that would defeat the entire purpose of the profitable enterprise of the trade. So Feitorias were usually on an island, like the one which was near present-day Rio de Janeiro. Uh, which uh, we know was there because it was later visited by Ferdinand Magellan in 1519 near, um, like I said, near near Rio de Janeiro. Now, that Fitoria, well, the reason it was on an island was to protect it, as most of them were, but incidentally, that one, that being on an island, did not protect it well enough. It was later destroyed by angry native Brazilians. At any rate, the Bertoa, we do know that it went to Brazil and returned to Portugal after a voyage of seven months. By that point, the ship was loaded with 5,000 Brazilwood logs, 22 exotic lovebirds, 16 monkeys, 16 exotic cats, 15 carrots, and 3 macaques. Which, I mean, that's better than the 12 days of Christmas, frankly. Which, anyway, dyewood and animals combined, this had a value of about 24,220 reis at uh, Lisbon. The Bertoa also returned with 40 slaves mostly women, these sold for an average of 4,000 reyes each. The men of the Bratoa made sure to pay the royal fifth on the human cargo while they were still in Brazil. Now, this is something that was common by this point for slavers to do. It essentially allowed them to claim that any slaves who died on the passage back to Portugal had been part of the royal fifth all along. Oh, I'm sorry, Your Majesty. It turns out that the slaves who died on the way back were the ones we gave to you. And only my personal slaves are still alive for anyone to sell. Huh. What a coincidence. I guess I don't have to pay my taxes. Now, this is an accounting trick that Portuguese slavers learned in the 15th century, you know, in the process of opening the Atlantic slave trade, how to make a little bit of extra money under the king's nose. Now, the Bertoa, excuse me, the Bertoa was not the only Portuguese vessel to seek Brazil wood and slaves in Brazil. But we don't have exact records for how many ships sailed for Portugal during this time. One German described another Portuguese ship just a few years later, though. Quote, Below decks, the ship is loaded with Brazil wood, and on deck it is full of young men and women who are being brought back. They cost the Portuguese little, for most are given freely. The people there think their children are going to a promised land, unquote. I don't have any idea how many people might have been tricked onto a Portuguese ship and sent from Brazil Brazil to Europe. But this deception was made possible because otherwise, the like I said, the Portuguese merchants in Brazil were on pretty good behavior. Uh, the Brazilwood trade depended on it. The natives 
themselves felled the hardwoods, transported the logs to the coast to be loaded onto ships. And, and frankly, the Portuguese were in awe of the larger warrior tribes that were inhabiting Brazil's coastline. Now, so rather than attempting a conquest, the Portuguese won friendship by trading metal axes and other tools for the Brazil wood and other goods. Now, but like I said, the Portuguese didn't really call Brazil Brazil. They tried really hard to call it Veracruz or Santa Cruz and, and the land of the parrots. It was, they gave it all sorts of names. Brazil but was already known. It was a fictitious island long before, you know, the, the 1500s that existed supposedly somewhere in the Atlantic on, on European maps. Spanish and Portuguese mariners very quickly learned that Brazil was gigantic, not an island, and but they also, just as immediately, even more immediately, I think, spotted Brazil wood on the coast at various places. The coasts of Paraiba, Pernambuco, the coasts of the Rial River, uh, and basically from Cabo Frio all the way down to the Rio de Janeiro, Brazil wood was everywhere on the coast of what the Portuguese tried really, really hard to call Santa Cruz. Seriously. The 16th century Portuguese historian Pero de Magelhes wrote, quote, We call it Brazil because the wood is red and resembles hot coals. Thus, the land got the name of Brazil. But in order that, this respect, that in this respect we may vex the devil, who has labored so hard and is still laboring, let us restore the name and call it the province of Santa Cruz, as in the beginning. Santa Cruz sounds better to our Christian ears. Than, than that of a tree, which serves for no other uses than the dying of cloth, unquote. Now, unfortunately, for Magelhe's Christian sensibilities, as more of Brazil was, you know, quote-unquote, discovered by Europeans, they just kept finding more and more sources of Brazil wood, and the name Brazil stuck, like it or not. Now, by 1513, the Portuguese had begun investigating the southern reaches of South America's Atlantic coastline. South of modern Brazil is the nation of Uruguay, which itself shares a border with Argentina. Between Uruguay and Argentina, what is now known as the, there is the, a river, what is now known as the Rio de la Plata, the, Rio, the river of silver in Portuguese. Now today, Buenos Aires and Montevideo lie on the western and northern shores of the Rio de la Plata, respectively. And in the 16th century, the region was likewise very well populated. A fleet of two Portuguese ships explored this part of South America in 1513, one captained by a certain João de Lisboa, who, and they were exploring this part of South America, um, looking for a, a way to India. And they returned, though, with a silver hatchet and tales of a river of silver, hence the name the Rio de la Plata. The silver axe almost certainly came by trade from the Inca Empire, but uh, incidentally, Lisboa also returned, claiming that the Rio de la Plata was not a river, but in fact was a strait which went through the southern tip of the continent. Or at least one existed around there. Maybe, in fact, he heard from natives that you could go around the continent. Whatever it was that he knew or, or thought he knew, um, this news was very important in Portugal, obviously, since, A, it coincided with the news of Balboa having discovered the Pacific Ocean in the first place, and so, yeah, it made a lot of sense, and, B, silver. 
Now, the other captain of the ship, though, was Esteban Froes, though the Spanish call him Esteban Flores, just so you know, and Froes' ship was in such poor shape by the time the two ships started heading back that Frozenstead was too fearful to make an Atlantic crossing without repairs and found himself in the Caribbean. Incidentally, he wasn't so fearful that he didn't engage in slaving along the coast of Central America, but at any rate, he was caught and punished. Not for the slaving, mind you, but for flying the Portuguese flag. And Froze and his entire crew were thrown into prison. And guess what? Froze's capture meant that Ferdinand and Fonseca soon learned about the so-called River of Silver, which led to the Indies. Well, the Spanish weren't too keen on just simply letting the Portuguese control all of South America, you know, and with the information that King Ferdinand and his advisors, like Fonseca, had learned from Froze and his crew, well, Ferdinand believed that the Rio de la Plata uh, would lead his navigators directly to the back, quote, the back parts of the Golden Castile, unquote, by which Ferdinand meant the Pacific side of Panama. Juan de la Solis was chosen for this mission. He commanded three ships and was ordered to reach the back side of Panama. From there, he would report uh, to Governor Pedrarius, who, as you'll recall, was the murderer of Balboa, the subject of our last episode, and this is, in fact, one of Ferdinand's final commands at conquest since he dies uh, in 1516. Now, we don't know a whole lot about what happened on this expedition. We do know that de Solis commanded three ships. We do know that he landed somewhere in Brazil. We do know that he headed south until eventually he reached the Rio de la Plata. And for what it's worth, the Spanish did not call it the Rio de la Plata at this time. And in fact, Solis named it the La Mar Dulce, the Freshwater Sea. And, in fact, after this voyage, the Spanish would call it the Rio Solis for some time. But, at any rate, the year is 1516, and Solis arrives on the Rio de la Plata. He found a group of natives who looked friendly enough, and took a boat to the shore that landed with him and seven of his men. Peter Martyr gives us the account of what happened when Solis and his men landed upon the shore. Quote, Suddenly a great multitude of the inhabitants burst forth upon them and slew every man with clubs, even in the sight of their fellows, not one escaping. Their fury not thus satisfied, they cut the slain men in pieces, even upon the shore, where their fellows might behold this horrible spectacle from the sea. But they, being stricken with fear through this example, durst not come forth of their ships, or devise how to revenge the death of their captain and companions. They departed, therefore, from these unfortunate coasts, and by the way, loading their ships with Brazil wood, returned home again with loss and heavy cheer. Of these things I was advertised of late by their own letters." Unquote. Now, the initial tragedy was compounded by the fact that only two of the three vessels made it back to Seville. The one which Solus himself was captaining shipwrecked, so they probably didn't have a backup navigator on board that boat after Solus died. Uh, at any rate, the survivors of that shipwreck must have gone on to have a very adventurous life, to say the least. One of them was rescued by Sebastian Cabot, more on that fascinating navigator in uh, a later episode. Uh, we're, we're a few episodes away from that. Uh, seven more survivors of the Solus fleet were rescued by Cristoval Jacques, 
who was a French navigator sailing for the Portuguese and who arrived later in 1516 to the Rio de la Plata himself, also obviously looking for a strait to the Pacific. He did not find it, of course, but by the time Jacques returned with the, uh, with the refugees, um, Spain and Portugal were both certain that a strait existed somewhere between the latitude of 35 degrees south and 50 degrees south, and that this strait would take them to the Pacific. Now, just to tie up the POW question you might have, Froze and his men ended up being exchanged for the Juan de la Solis survivors after a period of about four years in captivity. And for this part of the conquest, the conquest of the Rio de la Plata, well, we're going to save that for another episode. Excuse me, much like we'll be saving more information about Jean and Sebastian Cabot. Now, several more years are going to pass before someone else takes up the task of looking for a route through South America. Um, That would go through the Pacific anyway. But this time, in 1519... The result is different than the previous attempts. This voyage is undertaken by Ferdinand Magellan, and in case you've never heard it before, it was the greatest expedition in the history of the world. Magellan was born around 1480 in the extreme north of Portugal, and just so you know, Ferdinand Magellan is the anglicization of his name. He was born Fernão de Magelles. He grew up to be a sailor in the Portuguese service. And first, along the Atlantic coast, along the fleet of, uh, or the first time he sailed along the Atlantic coast was along the fleet of Francisco de Almeida to India in 1505 as a young nobleman volunteer. For now made uh, quite, um, uh, quite a reputation for himself. He was a talented offer in the Portuguese, officer, excuse me, in the, in the Portuguese service. But according to João de Barros, the 16th century Portuguese chronicler, quote, the king always loathed him, unquote. And, and nobody really knows why exactly, but Magellan became very angry after his service in the Indian Ocean when King Manuel refused to hear out his idea for finding an American strait that would lead to the Spice Islands. And as a further kind of an insult, uh, Manuel refused to give Magellan a pay raise uh, that Magellan requested after his service in India. And in fact, instead of all of this, Don Manuel had Magellan investigated um, to make sure he hadn't done any secret trading with Muslims. Um, those charges were dropped, but to make a long story short, all of this really pissed Magellan off. He left Portugal and joined the Spanish service. And this wasn't particularly unusual because the Portuguese kings of this era were basically complete assholes. For example, Bartolomeo Diaz received no reward at all for rounding the Cape of Good Hope. Despite the new possibilities for trade and conquest that opened up for Portugal, and and, and that was Manuel's father. Uh, And Magellan wasn't the only navigator not to like Don Manuel. Vasco da Gama, believed he was inadequately compensated for his services in the Indian Ocean and around Europe. Other monarchs kind of disparaged Don Manuel. They called him the Grocer King, since he was apparently just so obsessed with making money. And Manuel was a businessman. Beyond that, he was the kind of a-hole who expected loyalty from the people he planned on not paying for their services, something he apparently learned from his father, and which reminds me of a certain president. Anyway, 
Magellan made an alliance with a fellow Portuguese named Rui Faleiro, who was a scholar of navigation. Together, they came up with a plan. Magellan presented a, quote, well-painted globe showing the entire world, unquote, to the Spanish king Charles, uh, Charles I, something which Faleiro had made, and they presented that plan to the Spanish court, which essentially was to start at the Rio de la Plata, and from there go south, if uh, the Rio de la Plata didn't lead to India, until they found the strait. And from there they would go to Asia. Now, Faleiro's globe conveniently showed... Uh, that as being part of the Spanish side of the Treaty of Tordesillas. Now, if they could not find a strait, then they would turn around and, quote, follow the course that the Portuguese took, unquote. And either way, looking at the globe, excuse me, success meant that they would find lands already legally belonging to Spain. So this whole plan is basically made possible by the vagaries within the Treaty of Tordesillas, the division of the world uh, between Spain and Portugal. Um, so basically, Spain had lands to the west, Portugal had lands to the east, and, and the treaty was very tilted towards Spain. Incidentally, the Pope Alexander VI, who, who created this whole thing, uh, his original name, if you will, was Rodrigo de Borgia, who was a Spaniard born near Valencia, so go figure. At any rate, the treaty was signed in 1494, but it didn't achieve its final form until 1506. And frankly, even when that happened, it created just as many problems as it solved, because nobody could determine longitude in 1506. And in fact, nobody would be able to determine longitude for another 200 years. The treaty further didn't even specify whether or not it bisected the Atlantic Ocean or it extended 360 degrees around the globe. Now, you might not recognize exactly also the name they're talking to, Charles I, because he, he actually wasn't Charles I for long. Charles I arrived from Austria in 1518 to marry Ferdinand and Isabella's daughter, Juana the Mad, um, and he becomes king of Spain. But he only uses the name Charles I for two years because shortly after taking the throne of Spain, Charles is elected Holy Roman Emperor and started, started to call himself Carlos V, Charles V. Now, I want to mention him specifically because he's doing, because he's a, a competent ruler, apparently. Now, while people like Magellan are doing most of the work, and there's a lot of wealthy merchants in Seville and other port cities that are kind of financing a lot of this, I mean, say what you will, the end result of, of everything that, uh, that uh, Carlos Quinto does is that he eventually leaves his heirs an empire greater than anything the world had ever seen before it. His son, Philip II, would command the greatest empire of all time when he took the throne. 40 years before England, France, or any other nation established any lasting colonies in the New World. I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Anyway, despite Magellan's fantastic presentation, it is a minor miracle that the voyage went off as it did, at least with Magellan in command. I mean, the king was impressed by Magellan's plan, and he agreed to fund the venture. But in secret, the, Charles also allowed uh, the Archbishop Fonseca to do whatever he wanted to kind of undermine the Portuguese-born navigator's authority. Fonseca personally appointed two friends as captains of two of the five ships in the fleet. Louis de Mendoza and Gaspar de Quesada were 
were both men who were, quote, servants of the archbishop, unquote. Fonseca was in part also able to take control over much of the expedition because uh, basically shortly after this presentation happened, Magellan's partner Roy Faliro, who was going to be one of the captains, went insane. I don't know exactly what happened to him, but it, it, from, it seems he was suffering from something like maybe a severe bipolar disorder, some sort of mental illness like that. I, I, I'm not 100% sure. But he was acting so strangely. Um, you know, with mood swings and everything and, and, and different things going on. By July of 1519, Charles V ordered him replaced as captain of the ships, and Filera was placed by Juan de la Cartagena, who is listed as Fonseca's nephew, which is a euphemism of the 16th century to refer to a Catholic priest's illegitimate son. Um, now, by the time the expedition sailed, that means three of the five ships commanded uh, by were on, commanded basically by men loyal to Fonseca, not Magellan. Uh, and it wasn't even 100% certain when they left who exactly was to, supposed to be in charge, uh, Magellan and, or Cartagena. Judging by the number of mutinies that occurred on this voyage, it was probably Fonseca's plan all along to look for a way to wrest control of the expedition from Magellan, which is why I say it's, 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 I, I'm, I'm not sure that uh, it even, I'm, I'm surprised it even went off with Magellan in charge. But that's not the only reason why Magellan was having issues. Now, Don F Manuel was furious the king of Portugal, he was furious about all of this, as you might imagine. He did everything in his power to stop this enterprise. He offered Magellan a bribe to drop the expedition. The, he had his Portuguese embassy write just numerous letters to Charles, and Charles and Manuel were are cousins, mind you. Uh, regardless of everything, the expedition continued and with Magellan in control, albeit in control of a fleet who planned on mutinying against him. Frankly, it wasn't just the captains. The Portuguese weren't exactly popular in Spain. In fact, at one point, as Magellan was preparing his fleet, a crowd of men in Seville became so incensed at the sight of Magellan's family crest when he put his flag up on one of the ships that there was a riot in the harbor. Now, mind you, Magellan's family crest looks fairly similar to the official coat of arms of the Portuguese royal family, um, but at any rate, Magellan had to remind the locals that the ship belonged to, Charles, to King Charles, and if they damaged it, he would be very angry. As you might imagine then, Magellan was forced to look all over Spain to obtain sailors for his armada, and as a result, the crew was very, just, I mean, just a multi-ethnic crew. The fleet was majority Spanish, but... Uh, there were a lot of Portuguese, there were Genoese sailors, Sicilians, French, Germans, Greeks, Flemings, an Englishman named Master Andrew of Bristol, and two Irishmen, Guillermo Ires and Juanillo Ires, are, were in the ship's log. So, you know, Irish Bill and Irish Johnny were on, in on the fleet. So was Anton de Color Negro. He was one of six black sailors on Magellan's crew. At the time... It was compared, and favorably in Portugal, to the fleet of Jason and the Argonauts. Well, so they all went. On August 10th, 1519, leaving from Seville to parts unknown, ostensibly under the command of Ferdinand Magellan, though of course many of the officers were, quote, 
already plotting to kill him and take over, unquote. Amongst the crew, we know this, was because amongst the crew was a Venetian named Antonio Pigafetta, who, in addition to having a really funny last name, I just think Pigafetta is a cool name, he boasted of having, and in addition he boasted of having read many books, but now had a craving for experience and glory. Now, more importantly for us and for history, he recorded a lot of what happened on the voyage. He's one of the chief chroniclers of Magellan's voyage. So, too, was Francisco Albo. He was the pilot of one of the ships, and he kept a logbook. And a lot of the surviving sailors were actually interviewed extensively when they returned to Spain. At any rate, uh, that's where we get a lot of the information from. Magellan's fleet was called the Armada de Maluca, named after the islands in Southeast Asia that they were in search of, seeking spices and, of course, in secret, many of them seeking a way to get rid of Magellan. Pigafetta wrote, The masters and captains of the other ships of his company loved him not. I do not know the reason, unless it be that he was Portuguese and they were Spaniards and Castilians, which peoples have borne long ill will and malevolence toward one another." Unquote. Instead of the normal route through the Canaries and the Central Atlantic, Magellan took a southern route. He skirted the course of Africa for quite some time. He had heard rumors, in fact, that Dom and Well had sent an intercepting fleet to stop him. And in fact, the Portuguese king, Portuguese king was so furious that this was happening, he in fact sent two fleets to intercept Magellan. But Magellan's tactic was a great success in this regard. Be going south, not west, he slipped beyond the Portuguese by going exactly where they did not expect. On the other hand, this cost him a lot of time and food for the expedition, and as he would later learn, the food was in pretty short supply. The fleet entered the doldrums after turning towards Brazil, and by this time, even before crossing the Atlantic, Captain Cartagena began to probe the limits of Magellan's so-called authority. Each morning, the ships got together and all hailed Magellan so that he could give them orders. But somewhere along the voyage from Africa to Brazil, Cartagena stopped going to the meeting and instead began sending a subordinate. And after that, his subordinate stopped using Magellan's proper title, which was Senor Capitan General e Maestro, for your information. Magellan, for what it's worth, was descended from a noble family of ancient stock, and he did not have any intention of being misspoken to by some bishop's bastard child. Magellan suspected mutiny. He got his opportunity to attempt to punish Cartagena three days later. He summoned his four captains on board his flagship to participate in a trial. The quartermaster of one of the ships was being charged with sodomy with a ship's boy. Both men were condemned to death. Frankly, I think Magellan had ulterior motives for the trial. Sodomy was actually pretty common on the high seas. Way out in the ocean was basically one of the only places where you could be gay in European society. Not technically, but captains generally looked the other way. You just needed the manpower. I mean, they were literally kidnapping people to be on board a ship. So gay men willing to be on board a ship was... Uh, much more of a boon than it was, a, a, you know, anybody worried about them being gay. Anyway, three of the four captains serving under Magellan were in on a plot to mutiny, and Cartagena, their leader, used the opportunity of having all the captains together to begin yelling at Magellan. 
stating that he and the other captains would no longer obey Magellan's orders. And Magellan expected exactly that sort of nonsense from Cartagena. He had secretly ordered three of his loyal men, Portuguese sailors that is, to hide and wait. He sat in his chair and listened as Cartagena boldly stated his mutiny, before finally Magellan gave a signal. His loyalists burst through, fully armored with their swords drawn. As they did, Magellan suddenly sprang forth from his chair, grabbed Cartagena's collar, and yelled, Rebel! This is mutiny! You are my prisoner in the king's name! Cartagena ordered his confederates Mendoza and Quezada, the other two mutinous captains, to plunge their daggers into Magellan, according to the previously discussed plan that they had, uh, that they had made in secret for a Caesar-style assassination, apparently. But Mendoza and Quezada dared not move. So Cartagena was hauled off, clamped in a pair of stocks normally worn by common seamen, guilty of offenses like drunkenness or falling asleep on duty. Things calmed down a bit. Mendoza and Quesada actually convinced Magellan that they should be allowed to take charge of Cartagena's imprisonment, which Magellan agreed to, though he did also announce to the fleet that one of his loyalists, Antonio de Coca, was the new captain of Cartagena's ship. And that cleared things up for a while, at least. And in the meantime, Magellan sailed to Brazil. There, they dodged the Portuguese Feitoria established at Recife and continued south. In, by January 1502, Magellan was harbored at the river, which he named Rio de Janeiro, um, near, the, uh, near the Portuguese Feitoria there. The uh, Guarani natives he met swarmed the ship. They were eager to trade, especially for the German knives which the sailors brought to sell. Uh, Pigafetta tells us that the sailors preferred to sell daggers to men in exchange for their sisters. And, quote, nightly revels, unquote, were held ashore for two weeks after that. There was also more mutinous behavior in this time. Cartagena was released from his imprisonment, and either Magellan couldn't do anything about it, or wasn't aware of it for some time. But regardless, although Cartagena wasn't in control of a ship, he was free and back to plotting against Magellan. At any rate, the fleet left Rio de Janeiro uh, the day after Christmas in 1519. Quote, abandoning numerous native brides, unquote, the sisters, uh, the so-called sisters that these sailors were buying, and they made their way south. Uh... The fleet was headed to the Rio de la Plata, um, and when they arrived, it was quite foggy and, and they couldn't see the land. Magellan apparently was so excited when he saw the mountain through the fog, he said, I see a mountain, which in 16th century Portuguese mariner's slang translates directly to Montevideo, leading, lend, thus leading to the future capital of Uruguay getting its name Montevideo. Anyway, Magellan was certain he found his strait. Uh, like, like he'd mentioned to King Ferdinand, or excuse me, King Charles, this is where he intended to start looking. He sent his smallest caravel upriver to explore. When it was no longer possible for that caravel to go farther, he uh, dispatched a longboat to go farther still. But it just wasn't to be. Eventually, he was forced to concede that the Rio de la Plata was, in fact, a river, not a way to the sea. And to find the strait, Magellan was going to have to keep going. 
That meant sailing, sailing farther south along the coast. Reaching the, the place in South America we know of as Patagonia. This is particularly dangerous for the fleet because during the winter, severe thunderstorms appear on the South Atlantic, known as pomperos. They, they quote, blow with great ferocity off the land, unquote. Storm after storm threatened Magellan's fleet as they attempted to explore various opportunities for the strait that he was certain that existed. By this point, the fleet was completely out of food nearly, and they would have starved to death except for conveniently, uh, the conveniently numerous wingless ducks they kept seeing. Well, that's what they called them. We know them as penguins, of course. But at any rate, one particularly fierce storm even forced Magellan to stay in a bay for six days. He named it the Bahia de los Trabajos, the Bay of Travail, a location for your information that was later described by Darwin in 1833 as, quote, a wretched place, unquote. Anyway, for three weeks, Magellan's fleet suffered near continuous battering. They didn't see the sun for this time, but finally, and on the last day of March, they entered a harbor that seemed a bit uh, safe. Magellan named it Puerto San Julian. Julian. Uh, winter was coming in the southern hemisphere by this time, and so Magellan and the fleet were forced to stay in, uh, in this harbor for five months. Um, they were unable to leave Patagonia until the 24th of August, and to make sure no one tried to leave early, Magellan moored his flagship into a bottleneck that led into the harbor, and so anyone trying to escape was going to risk being pummeled by his cannon. So for the next two months, the fleet just kind of sat there unhappily, and then one day, quote, suddenly we saw a naked man of giant stature on the shore. Uh, on the shore of the harbor, dancing, singing, throwing dust on his head. When the giant was in the captain general's in our presence, he marveled greatly and made signs with one finger raised upwards, believing that we came from the sky. He was so tall that we reached only his waist, and he was well proportioned, unquote. Those are the words of Antonio Pigafetta. The man was painted all over and wearing the skins of wild guanaco, which is an animal related to the llama, and which the people of Patagonia were, were connected to in kind of a similar way to how North American plains people were connected to the buffalo, to be honest. Um, and the man appeared to be a giant to Magellan's fleet for three principal reasons. First, the people of Patagonia led a nomadic life full of eating meat and exercise. The man was probably as athletic as anyone the Europeans had ever seen in their lives. Two, the Patagonians were excellent craftsmen. The man appeared barbaric to the Europeans, but the people of Patagonia were so good at making the special kinds of shoes they liked to make, which were made of guanaco hides and stuffed with straw, that they made the feet wearer's feet look enormous, and Europeans literally could not tell that these were shoes doing this and they weren't just giant people with big feet. And that's because of the third reason. Europeans were just almost as ignorant about the world as the giant man that they had just encountered, who himself was so terrified after receiving a mirror from the Portuguese upon when he saw his reflection that he tumbled backwards and fell over, knocking over four of the, Port or of the Europeans over in the process. Anyway, 
So that's how the first encounter between Patagonians and Magellan's fleet went, with peace and misunderstandings. Two weeks later, four more natives showed up. Magellan decided to kidnap two of them. He did so via a trick. He started giving the Patagonians gifts, so many gifts that he filled their hands full. He continued to offer them things. Like, in fact, oh, you can't carry anything, but I still want to give you these nice leg irons. The Patagonians told him they could not carry them since they couldn't carry any more things. But Magellan decided to show them, well, let me show you how you might carry the irons on your legs. And when they agreed, quote, they saw later that they were tricked and raged like bulls, calling for their god Sitebos to aid them, unquote. Pigafetta added that Sitebos was the devil. Well, that started a quick downward spiral. The other two natives escaped. Magellan sent a detachment of nine men to find them, fearful that they would tell their friends about what had happened. In the night, the detachment of conquistadors found the abandoned huts of the Patagonians, and in the morning they were attacked by nine Patagonian warriors armed with bows and arrows. The Patagonian natives were hardy people. Quoting Picavetta, quote, Our men had crossbows and muskets, but they could never hit any of those people because they never stood in one place, but leapt hither and thither. Fighting thus, one of these giants pierced one of our men in the thigh, who died immediately. Whereupon seeing him dead, they all fled, unquote. Well, that ended any thought of a conquest of Patagonia. Neither did any more natives visit the coast to see the fleet in the remaining, in the remaining three months. That left plenty of time for mutiny. It didn't probably help that Magellan had cut the rations. Uh, at any rate, the mutiny occurred on Palm Sunday. That day, Magellan summoned the captains to dinner in the flagship, but only one of them accepted, the Portuguese Alvaro de Mesquita. And, hmm, Magellan said, that's not a good sign. Mesquita never made it to the dinner, in fact, though, either. Cartagena retook his ship and stabbed Mesquita, which was the... Oh, or excuse me, Mesquita made it to the river, but the other guy, uh, Coca, Cartagena had retaken his ship and had stabbed that guy, um, who Magellan had replaced him with. Um, he was alive, but Coca found himself placed in irons uh, by the end of the night in Palm Sunday, and so the mutineers had control of three ships. The next day, they sent a message to Magellan on his flagship, uh, that message saying that they were no longer going to obey him unless his orders were to sail back to Spain. Well, unfortunately for the mutineers, Magellan was, in case you didn't notice from the way he tricked those two uh, Patagonians, he's fucking crafty. He captured the men who brought the message of mutiny and proceeded to dress his own loyalists in their clothes. He used this... Uh, to send a boat full of disguised loyalists back to the mutineers. So that's how one of the three lead mutineers, Mendoza, found his throat slit and his head stabbed as the longboat of armed loyalists retook his ship. Now only two ships of mutineers remained. Next was the ship which Quesada had taken. Magellan sent another loyalist who was a strong swimmer to that ship. That man cut the cables, which, which moored the ship to the seafloor, and then Quesada's ship proceeded to start drifting closer and closer to Magellan's flagship, and then Magellan fired. By the time the rebels realized what was happening, it was too late. As they neared Magellan's ship, 
Um, they started to get ready, and as they were still in the process of trying to get ready for a battle, they received a point-blank broadside of cannon, amplified by men firing crossbows and stabbing the rebels with lances. Quesada reportedly stood on the deck in full armor, in vain attempting to rally his crew, arrows and crossbow bolts bouncing off his steer corslet. But he was forced to surrender to Magellan himself when Magellan himself boarded the ship and drew his sword. That left only Cartagena, who promptly surrendered and was placed under arrest. So Magellan quelched this mutiny, having lost merely a single loyalist, the very seriously injured uh, Coca. Two days after the mutiny started, Magellan punished the offenders. Mendoza, dead, was taken to shore and promptly quartered, cut into four pieces. The trial happened after that. Magellan called for a court-martial, and during the trial, Magellan found all the chief mutineers, including the quartered corpse of Mendoza, guilty of treason and sentenced to death. One of those mutineers, a servant of Quesada, got to win his life and freedom back in reward for him executing his master, which he apparently did with relish. Quesada's body was hanged on a gibbet Next, on a gibbon next to Mendoza's remains. Magellan, though, then commuted the other sentences, including Cartagena, which is almost inexplicable, if you ask me, that he was spared, uh, considering uh, everything else. Uh, but anyway, Cartagena and the other mutineers were instead forced, uh, sentenced to hard labor. Their task was to cut wood and to pump out the ships through the rest of the winter. And obviously, this just meant that Cartagena was going to try another mutiny. Just a few weeks later, he was caught with a chaplain trying to stir up the men to another fresh mutiny, and another court-martial took place. The priest and Cartagena were sentenced to be marooned, and so Cartagena ended up living his days on Patagonia. Tough for him. But there was other trouble, too, besides mutinous Spaniards. The reason Magellan had cut the supplies in time is because he realized at this point that he didn't have as many supplies as he thought he had when he left. He'd been cheated by, quote, civilian land sharks, unquote, who, instead of preparing the fleet for 18 months, had only filled it for six months of supplies for the price of 18 months of supplies. So luckily there were the penguins. Now, I just want to say that Samuel Elliot Morrison has this to say on the matter. Quote, A curse on rascally ship chandlers, purveyors of rotten spars, substandard cordage, and spoiled or insufficient food. Magellan's men, Captain Cook's, and countless others suffered from the diabolical cheating of these human teredos. Their callously selfish percolations have sent countless thousands of poor sailors prematurely to Fiddler's Green. Damn their eyes, one and all, unquote. Couldn't say it better myself. By the end of winter, the sailors were pondering mutiny once more. But luckily for Magellan, on October 17th, before any more mutinies occurred, he decided spring had come, and that the five months of hell were over. What followed wasn't easy, but on November 1st, Magellan finally found his strike. He called it Todos los Santos, all Saints Day, and on early maps that name stuck for parts of the strait. But by the shortly after Magellan's fleet returned, by the time they made it all the way back to Spain, 
Uh, that strait had a new name, Estrecho de Magellan, Magellan Strait. Modern sailing directions state, quote, the passage is safe for steamers, but in thick weather, both difficult and dangerous, because of incomplete surveys, the lack of aids to navigation, the great distance between anchorages, the strong current, and the narrow limits for the maneuvering of vessels, unquote. But Magellan made it through. Once he did, he was in the Pacific, and from there, on to Asia. Now, that fleet continued to have many, many adventures. Though Magellan, in fact, most of his men would die. It's a fascinating story, but like Cabral's voyage to India, it's not really part of ours. If you're looking for a good book about it, Lawrence Bear Over the Edge of the World really brings the drama. And as far as podcasts go, there's a show called The Explorer's Podcast that has a great four-part series on, on Magellan's voyage. Um, anyway, you might could give that one a try. Incidentally, uh, we sort of have the same issue with Cabral. Uh, he does a lot of stuff in Asia, and so I, I shamelessly requested a series on his expedition by the Explorers podcast. Though there, I, I can't, I can't seem to find much about him online podcast wise. But uh, anyway, that kind of concludes the uh, the quote unquote discovery part of our episode. As traditionally told, in fact, the history of Brazil sort of goes like that. Up until about 1550, the Portuguese slowly developing a larger presence in Brazil. After the voyage of Cabral, the Spanish sort of cut them off at the Rio de la Plata. Uh, and the, the Portuguese may have named it the Rio de la Plata, but the Spanish had more manpower. And so like all the other parts of the Americas rumored to have gold and silver, the Rio de la Plata becomes a Spanish possession. And incidentally, this does pretty much work pretty well with the Treaty of Tordesillas. And technically, this isn't the end of Brazil's discovery, quote-unquote, either. I mean, in a later episode, we're going to discuss, for example, the fantastic voyage of Francisco Orellana. He left Peru and sailed down the Amazon all the way to Atlantic. He was the first European to have done so, and but since we haven't discussed the conquest of Peru, I think it's fair to wait. For now, I'm going to leave you with the knowledge that in the deepest region, reaches of the Amazon, there's a society that was very, very different than what we've been talking about in this episode. Um, at any rate, at the same time of Oriana's uh, voyage, uh, Portugal starts setting up donatary captaincies along the coastline, which create the first permanent colonies in Brazil. And from these, they begin launching a lot of slave raids into the interior. So the, the creation of the donatary captaincies is actually directly con connected to the disappearance of the, of the urban society, which Orellana reports seeing in the jungle at the headwaters of the Amazon. Um, anyway, uh, the story of Francisco Orellana is fantastic. He sails from west to east down the Amazon. And until very recently, that was he was called a liar by my, uh, researchers and historians. Um, but uh, some of his uh, things have been have been proven true recently. And in addition, anyway, we're going to discuss the colonization of Brazil, the formation of the donatory captaincies, and, and 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 you know the end of that advanced Amazonian civilization. It's going to be an exciting episode for sure. And, and in fact, like all that stuff, most of Brazilian history focuses kind of on what happens after 1550. I mean, Brazil is discovered around 1500, but, it, you know, and in part, traditionally historians just don't tell the story of the genocide and the slavery that makes up 
early American history. Um, there's also fewer documents regarding the Portuguese in Brazil. Uh, there, there were a few fires that kind of destroyed parts of the Portuguese historical record, so, so that might be part to blame for why it is too. Um, but that doesn't mean that nothing happened in Brazil, except for a few voyages of discovery by Europeans. I mean, for starters, a steady stream of intrepid European merchants made plenty of money by going to Brazil, by getting in a big fancy boat and filling it with Brazil wood, which, you know, is a source of red dye. And of course, there was money to be made catching slaves. And though fewer records of Brazilian slave-taking expeditions exist in comparison to those in the Spanish, what's going on in the Caribbean and Central America is different. To be honest, I, I'm... In part, there's a lack of manpower going on. Portugal has a small population. In part, there might be a lack of records. Um, and also, besides all of this, though, uh, the demand in Portugal was largely met by the time Portugal and Brazil met. Brazil, I mean, Portugal already had various trade agreements with a number of African kings by the start of the 16th century, and the would-be Portuguese uh, uh, slaver of the 16th century might rightfully ask himself, why would I risk my life capturing slaves in Brazil when I could simply go to market in Africa to buy some? So, at any rate, if this were the traditional telling of Brazilian history, we'd probably end this history, this episode right here, mentioning that trade slowly increased, and we would go on, uh, we would either end it here, we would go on to speak about the second half of the 16th century, the formation of the donatory captaincies, but there is, in fact, a secret history within that story. Because, I, what if I told you that the Portuguese victors who ultimately win Brazil and start all these numerous permanent colonies in the second half of the 16th century, we're also hiding a secret history of the first half of the 16th century of Brazil. You see, what if I told you that the Portuguese were never alone in Brazil at all? And I don't just mean the Spanish. What if the truth is that immediately after Portugal claimed Brazil, French conquistadors began showing up, and that they didn't give a rat's ass about the Treaty of Tordesillas. Now, obviously, the Portuguese found this completely unacceptable. For starters, the Portuguese did not want Frenchmen stepping foot on what they regarded as Portuguese soil, and Portugal claimed all of Brazil, but more important than just national pride was the economics behind all of this. French merchants and conquistadors didn't feel the need to stop at Lisbon and give one-fifth of their cargo to the Portuguese crown. And they were using this savings to sell Brazil wood and other Brazilian goods at lower prices than the Portuguese offered. And the problem wasn't only in Europe. Frenchmen overseas in Brazil spent quite a bit of time informing the Brazilians what terrible people the Portuguese were. And as angry as the Portuguese were about all of this, well, A, Brazil was a gigantic place, is a gigantic place. There was practically nothing the Portuguese could do to keep the French out. And so for years, quote, Brazil teetered between becoming a possession of the Pero or the Maier, which are the Tupi words for the Portuguese and French, respectively. 
Now, the French organized their trade in Brazil a bit differently than the Portuguese. Instead of building feitorias on the coast that acted as fortresses and warehouses, the French just sent interpretives into Brazil to live with the Brazilians. Quote, blonde Normans, unquote, who settled with the natives, lived in native villages, and they did this so that they could organize shipments of Brazil wood for the next French fleet. They lived as the Brazilians did most often, becoming, quote, naked sultans, unquote, in the words of historian John Hemming. Jean de Liri, a 16th century French pastor, wrote, quote, some interpreters from Normandy who have lived eight or nine years in that country accommodated themselves to the savages and led the lives of atheists. They not only polluted themselves with all sorts of lewdness and villainy among the women and girls, but surpassed the savages in inhumanity. I have heard them boasting of having killed and eaten prisoners, unquote. And the French didn't just live among native Brazilians. They were constantly bringing Brazilians back to France. They did so at least as often as the Portuguese were bringing Brazilians to Portugal. Palmier de Gonville was a captain from Hornflower who went to Brazil. His ship was so full of trade woods, which so impressed the Carijo tribe that he encountered, that the chief of the tribe sent his son back with Gonville to France in 1505. Gonville promised to teach the boy artillery, quote, which they desired greatly to dominate their enemies, and also how to make mirrors, knives, axes, and all they saw and admired among the Christians. Promising all this was like promising a Christian gold, silver, and jewels, or to teach him about the philosopher's stone, unquote. The prince was Christianized Binot, received a good education, he married Gonneville's daughter, and he received property and the Gonneville coat of arms, ultimately, but he never did return to Brazil. In 1509, Captain Thomas Albert brought seven Indians back to France from Brazil in his ship, La Pensée. They were taken to the city of Rhone, paraded about, wearing their feathers and loincloths, wielding bows and arrows, and carrying bark canoes. Many were entertained, no, not everyone in France was a fan. One Frenchman remarked, quote, They speak with their lips and they have no religion, and they know nothing about bread, wine, or money. Unquote. I'm pretty sure he sounded like that. Portuguese and French rivalry meant that the early years of the relatively peaceful trading between Brazilians and Europeans wasn't going to last forever. And in fact, before long, an undeclared war was being waged by both powers for control of the trade. The Portuguese protested to the French king, and the French king, what with him being completely ignored in the Treaty of Tordesillas, decided that he was going to ignore the fact that some of his citizens were breaking the treaty. And ultimately, uh, the French Brazilwood trade began to be dominated by one merchant in Dieppe. His name was Jean de Ango. He earned a fortune doing what he uh, doing so, which he used to build a palace made of different tropical woods. Uh, this palace included exotic animals running around the house. He had numerous carvings of Brazil, Brazilian Indians uh, in, in the yard. In fact, uh, 
And this wasn't all. By mid-16th century, in fact, Brazilians brought back to France by French sailors was a pretty familiar sight, actually. It's so familiar that by 1550, the city of Rouen wished to welcome uh, the French king Henry II and his wife Catherine de Medici uh, when the royal court, court visited the city, that they entertained the royal uh, the royal pair by transforming a meadow that was beside the Seine River into a resemblance of Brazil. Trees and bushes from Brazil were planted in the meadow, and uh, additionally, tree additional tree branches were placed on some of the trees that were already in the meadow with imitation Brazilian fruits that were then tied to these branches. I mean, it must have been quite a spectacle, and this was topped off with the construction of two thatched cabins built at either side of the meadow, and which represented the villages of the Tupinamba and the Tabajara, two warring tribes along Brazil's northern coast. To complete the scene, 300 men decorated and equipped in the, were decorated and equipped in the manner of Brazilians. Now, only 50 of the 300 were actual Brazilians. Most were just Frenchmen, but they were Frenchmen who'd been to Brazil. They knew the language a bit, they knew some of the gestures and mannerisms, and so this grand reenactment began uh, with men demonstrating archery, loading wood, swinging in hammocks. Then a mock battle took place where, of course, the French allied tribe, the Tupinamba, for your information, they were victorious over their Portuguese allied Tobajara enemies. Henry and Catherine were delighted as they watched the Tobajara hut burn. Now, I don't think that any cannibalism occurred during this reenactment, so that means this reenactment, like all of them, weren't 100% accurate, since the two tribes were intractable enemies to the extent that they would literally kill and eat each other. At any rate, the relationship between Portugal and France deteriorated over trade in Brazil, um, and... Nobody in Europe was resorting to cannibalism, but Dom Manuel, the king of Portugal, did eventually realize that by sending emissaries to France was just resulting in worthless promises. He ultimately decided to take revenge in 1527. He sent a Coast Guard fleet to Brazil under the command of one Cristóvão Jacques, who had previously been to Brazil and built a trading post near Itamaraca on his way back from an expedition to the Rio de la Plata, Jacques hunted French interlopers from Pernambuco to Rio de Janeiro. According to Abreu, quote, his wrath knew no bounds. He was not satisfied with mere executions. He needed to torture his victims, and he handed them over to the natives who devoured them. Even so, he brought back 300 prisoners to Portugal. He must have done enormous damage to the French, unquote. Cristóvão Jacques essentially went to Brazil and pulled the weeds out of French colonialism. But even in this victory, Cristóvão realized that these weeds, i.e. foreign interlopers, whether they be from France or elsewhere, were going to return unless the Portuguese made an effort to settle. He offered his services to Dom Manuel, stating that he would lead 1,000 colonists to Brazil. Another nobleman, João de Melo de Camara, joined him in that request. And, um, 
Zhao Dan Melo de Camaro, just he's the brother of, just so you know, he, his brother was the governor of Sao Miguel off the coast of Africa, so he was kind of familiar with how colonization worked a bit. And Camaro offered to lead another thousand settlers to Brazil, but Dom Manuel declined this offer. Um, not yet seeing the wisdom in this sort of plan. Instead, he sent another fleet, this one even more powerful, outfitted and commanded by Martin Afonso de Sousa. Excuse me. And this fleet was basically Manuel's idea of a compromise between the ideas of Cristavo and Camara and Dom Manuel's ideas, who just wanted to patrol the coast. He had no intention of letting his set subjects settle on another continent where he couldn't really see what they were up to, and he just wanted to keep making money here. At any rate, D'Souza reached the coast of Pernambuco in January 1531 and immediately began finding more French interlopers. He ended up capturing three French ships in just a matter of days of being off the Brazilian coast. Then he split his fleet. He sent two ships heading west. He and the rest of the fleet went south. And considering that part of his fleet consisted of a couple of unarmed ships, um, it seems he likely intended on going to the Rio de la Plata. Um, anyway, France couldn't really do much to retaliate. Because despite all of this, believe it or not, the king of France believed it was more important to preserve friendship if he could with the Portuguese because he was more worried about his other even more powerful Iberian rival, the Sp Spain, uh, and and was okay, basically, with the Portuguese killing some of his subjects overseas if that meant that they wouldn't, that he might still be able to call upon them if, if he needed them against Spain. Anyway, Jean Parmentier was a French sea captain who summed up the opinion that of most Frenchmen who were not the French king and who were involved in the maritime trades of the Portuguese. Quote, Even though this people is the smallest of all the globe, that globe does not seem large enough to satisfy all its cupidity. The Portuguese must have drunk the dust of the heart of King Alexander to show such exaggerated ambition. If it were in their power to close the seas, they would have done so long ago. Yet the Portuguese have no right to prevent French merchants from landing in lands they have abrogated, in which they have not planted the Christian faith, and are neither loved nor obeyed. As soon as they have sailed along the coast, they take possession of it and consider it a conquest, unquote. At any rate, Martin Afonso de Souza, like I said, he had a little more on his mind than just ridding Brazil of Frenchy, Fre pesky Frenchmen, he desired to discover the secret of the Rio de la Plata. Ever since 1514, when the first specimens of silver artifacts had been gotten from the region, stories of wealth from the River of Silver had grown, Cristóbal Jacques came back with stories and rumors of the wealth when he returned to Portugal with silver in 1522, Sebastian Cabot, like I said more about him in a later episode, he makes an attempt at finding the secret of the Rio de la Plata in 1526, sailing under the Spanish flag. he That's when he finds the survivors of the earlier failed Solus expedition. Um, unfortunately for Solus, he died in that attempt. Less unfortunately for Cabot, he failed, but he lived. Uh, like I said, more on him later. At any rate, um, 
regardless of all these failures, Martin Afonso de Souza was certain he would find the secret of the silver. So instead of, I guess, finishing the French off, he just sent one of his conquistadors, Francisco de Chavres, upstream on September 1st, 1531, with 40 crossbowmen and 40 musketeers. They all died at the hands of the natives, probably a direct consequence of Chavra's stated plan, which was to return, quote, in 10 months' time with 400 slaves and loaded down with silver, unquote. Anyway, while Martin Afonso waited for Chavra to return, he began settling the land, founding two towns, one on the shoreline and the other a few leagues inland, on a riverbank named Sao Vicente and the San Andre, respectively, both are in the modern-day province of Sao Paulo. Like I said, he also kind of stopped hunting French ships. So before long, French merchants began to return to Brazil. When de Souza learned that Chavres was dead, and then subsequently he learned, ultimately, that Francisco Pizarro, a Spaniard, beat him to the source of the silver by discovering, quote-unquote, the Inca Empire, um, which is where the people of the Rio de la Plata were getting their silver from in the first place, well, Sousa, I guess, lost some of his desire to be in Brazil altogether. By 1535, he was in India. Ultimately, there he served as governor for the Portuguese for some time and returned to Lisbon and, and, and died there. Uh, at any rate, um, because Martin Afonso stopped looking for French interlopers, like I said, the French came back, and this time they set up their own fortress, complete with soldiers and cannons at what is now Pernambuco, and this fortress might have very well have been the first successful colony of what would become a French-speaking Brazil, if not for the fact that a, the sh a ship named La Pellerine ran out of food on the way back to Marseille after dropping off the soldiers and cannon at Pernambuco and was forced to come to port off the Spanish port coast of Malaga. Well, it just so happened that a fleet of ten Portuguese ships just happened to be at Malaga on their way to Rome. Dom Martinho was the Portuguese captain in charge of this fleet, and when he learned what Pellerin had been up to in Brazil, Martinho had the French captain and pilot arrested. La Pellerin was captured and taken to Lisbon, and Martin Afonso de Souza's brother, Pero Lopez de Souza, was sent to Brazil, where he promptly started bombarding the French fortress at Pernambuco. He did that for 18 days, the French surrendered, and Pero Lopez hanged the most of the surviving garrison, or, or part of the surviving garrison, excuse me. He brought most of them back to Portugal to be imprisoned. Um, anyway, the capture of La Pellerine the and the subsequent surrender of the French trading post at Pernambuco really kind of finally got Dom Manuel's attention. In 1532, the king announced he was demarcating Brazil's coast from Pernambuco to the Rio de la Plata into 50-mile sections so he could award it to people as donatary captaincies. Martin Afonso would be one donatary captain, though his failure to reach the source of the silver from the Rio de la Plata made him not really want to be in Brazil, like I said. Regardless, until he left three years later to go to India, he was technically in charge of 100 miles of coastline. So, too, was his brother, Pero Lopez, a donatary captain. And in total, there were... Uh, 12 or 13 captaincies, I can't remember, and they were further subdivided into lots. 
Though besides Martin Afonso de Souza, the other captaincies, just so you know, were 50 miles, not 100 miles. Um, the first colonists sent to these places were convicts, men previously sentenced to death, their sentences commuted, and they were put in three caravels, made to go to shore, quote, and tame that country so as to not subject decent men to danger, unquote. According to one Venetian trader, anyway, writing in 1533. And that's where we're going to leave off the history of the colonization of Brazil for now. I don't even know when we're going to get back to it. As soon as possible, we are going to return to Brazil to talk about the second half of the 16th century. And that is going to be a very fun episode. But for now, we're not really done with this story. I mean, I know we, I said we were done, and then technically I just said that again after I told you the first time we were done, and then I told you a secret history of Frenchmen in Brazil. But that's, that's not the only sort of secret history that's going on here. Now, even though Europeans control the route by which things pass through the New World and the Old World, the exchange that takes place between Europe and America goes two ways. So the final part of this story is also one about conquest. But it's not a story of traditional conquest. And in fact, like I said, very few Brazilians will go to Europe. But their impact is oversized. Because when news of Brazil, Brazilians, and Brazilian ideas about what it means to be human and how human beings should live reaches Europe, the result are revolutionary transformations. Our final topic can be basically summed up as the Brazilian conquest of the European mind. Before I get into that exactly, though, I think I better get into a concept that researchers call the go-between. The best way to do that is to quote Dr. Alida Metcalf, the author of Go-Betweens and the Colonization of Brazil. Quote, Go-betweens link groups or individuals who cannot communicate with each other, unquote. Simple enough. Some go-betweens have achieved significant attention from historians and from our imaginations. Um, one that comes to mind is Pocahontas. Uh, so too does La Malinche, or Doña Maria, who is a Hernan Cortez interpreter and mistress, if you don't know. Later in United States history, the Lois and Clark expedition relies on a go-between in the form of a woman named Sacagawea, a Shoshone guide who aided them to explore the American West. But as Metcalf writes, quote, most go-betweens have not become mythical figures in national histories, mainly because they have been overlooked or forgotten, unquote. The go-betweens who influence the history of Brazil have perhaps been more forgotten than anywhere else in the Americas. Dr. Metcalf argues, and I think I agree with her, that the only way for us to get a truly accurate picture, though, into the history of 16th century Brazil is in part by, quote, looking for the go-betweens and listening to their voices, unquote. Now, Portugal sought to control the go-betweens that linked it to the various places where Portuguese sailors went. Um, that's why those awesomely armed caravels are so important. Uh, obviously, if your boats are so much better than anyone else in the world, then you can kind of sort of dictate in many ways, how the relationship between these two regions and cultures can operate. 
in theory, there are kind of two sorts of transactional go-betweens, a mediator and an arbitrator. In theory, a mediator is a neutral guide. A mediator helps two sides come to an agreement, but that's not really how much of anything works in reality. Nobody is neutral. Newsflash. The arbitrator, in contrast, is not a neutral guide, but someone who, by, at least by the end of the agreement, will have taken a side. The arbitrator will basically be in agreement with one or the other side of any engagement between two cultures or societies. And basically, the Portuguese import, quote, one, unquote, Brazil from native Brazilians in no small part because they were able to control the vast majority of the go-betweens that occurred between Brazil and Portugal. Now, and in fact, Portuguese state policy literally kind of encourages the creation of go-betweens. You know, it's not just the boats. If you recall, there's a term degradado, the exiled prisoner, the, the fate of many prisoners in Portugal. Cabral leaves two prisoners at Brazil. They, these two men are degradados in Portuguese uh, language. Even though he was going to India, you just kind of put him there. You know, sort of like, well, we're, we might as well exile these thieves here since we're here. You know, degradados were placed on Brazilian soil all the time. First by Cabral, and though translators are mentioned by Vespucci just a couple of years later, you know, to be honest, the detail with which he describes Tupi Guarani societies sort of seems to speak to the fact that at least one of these degradados left by Cabral must have survived and served as translator to help Vespucci understand some of this. And Portugal, Portugal is a small nation with overly ambitious overseas objectives. And this could literally only be accomplished by kind of creating translators and other intermediaries out of condemned prisoners. And I mean, really, Portugal's plan was to fuck their way to the top. Now, you can see this at work when Magellan sets off. Um, one of his pilots, the Portuguese man Lopez de Carvalho, um, who was the pilot of one of the ships, literally when they get to Brazil, he stops and picks up one of his illegitimate children in Rio de Janeiro when the fleet arrives. The Portuguese called these people mamalucos. And as a case in point, miscegenation was so commonly the result of Portuguese quote-unquote discovery and colonialism, and it basically was their official state policy. Now, according to Abreu, the 18th century Brazilian historian, quote, Indian women's desire to have children belonging to a superior race explains their union with white men, unquote, and the reason that white men would deign to hook up with Brazilian, native Brazilians, quote, well, they must have been moved to miscegenation by the scarcity, if not total absence of white women, unquote. Now, I don't think Abreu is right. Now, Abreu is a famous historian of the 19th century, and it's actually kind of neat to read some of his stuff. He's a very, very descriptive. He is also kind of classically racist in the 19th century way, and, and largely in some cases that he doesn't let that stand in the way, I guess you could say, of his writing good history. Sometimes that means his explanations for why things occur leave a lot to be desired. Um, unless, of course, what you desire out of your historical explanations is a dose of 19th century racism, I guess. So I, I don't think we can explain miscegenation between Portuguese conquistadors and Brazilian women how Abreu does. Or at least I find that explanation very unlikely. But I do think Abreu makes a good point. 
because he also calls the Portuguese who visit the Brazilian coast, quote, millionaire purveyors of marvelous items, unquote. And I think that really does hit the nail on the head. The Tupi and Gi-speaking societies, I mean, they're just as, frankly, as sexist as European societies, it seems. And a uh, father status largely determined his children's status, and such these millionaire purveyors of marvelous items, like fishhooks, combs, knives, scissors, and mirrors, were attractive not just to Brazilian women, but also to Brazilian fathers. Now, to add to this factor, the best way for a European to develop good trading relationships in Brazil and, say, have plenty of access to Brazil wood would be to marry into a powerful Brazilian family and presto. I mean, the simple truth behind all of this is that there's powerful economic factors at work that are bringing men and women together. Now, at any rate, so obviously some go-betweens are literally physical go-betweens. People who bring plants, animals, disease, women who bear and raise mixed-race children. These are people whose human agency literally transforms the world's biology. Now, there's another kind of go-between. That's the transactional go-between. Translators, cultural brokers, and negotiators. Um, perhaps not as common, but maybe even more influential in many ways. But there's also a third type of go-between, the representational go-between. These are people who write the accounts, who draw the maps, and who paint the pictures of scenes of this other world. Now this third type of go-between, the representational go-between, the people who present their depiction of America to Europe, well that's exactly why Amerigo Vespucci is so important to this story. There are many like him. He's just the most well-known. And as we discussed, he successfully passed off a great fraud claiming he was first. So, you know, as a result, he has the two continents named after him. But Cabral's account was sensational, too. Immediately after Cabral's Armada returns, an Italian merchant, Giovanni Affidati, interviewed one of the sailors... Two days after that, he had written a full account of the voyage for the Venetian ambassador to Spain. That account was forwarded to the Doge of Venice, who received news thusly that the Portuguese, quote, received a new land of that, that which they call of the parrots. They judged this land to be a mainland because they saw more than 2,000 miles of coastline and did not find an end, unquote. Now, the Doge responded by sending agents to Portugal to gather more in information. Uh, incidentally, what he was worried about is that the Portuguese were about to cut him out of the Indian spice trade. But in fairness, it wasn't just the Portuguese who was about to cut them out. Florentine merchants like Vespucci were trying to get in on this business. They wanted to get on in the spice trade and cut the Venetians out themselves. Others thought the same. One of them was Benoît Palmier de Gonville. He happened to be in Lisbon and saw Cabral's ships unloading with exotic goods and said to himself, Hey, when I get back to France, why don't I try to hire some experienced pilots and make a go at that myself? He did just that with two Portuguese pilots, and that's how the French got in on Brazil in the first place. 
As for Vespucci and Cabral's sailors and the European public at large, they were absolutely fascinated by the apparent freedom of Brazilian people. Now, to be clear, they saw Native Americans in a fictional way. Some Europeans saw devils and mindless savages. Others saw innocents or people without more... The kind of noble nonsense, savage nonsense that we were talking about earlier. About, you know, how they function harmoniously with nature and don't have a civilization. Not that they have a different civilization. And, you know, none of that's true. Because, but, and because Europeans are viewing Americans through these sorts of lenses, it's easy for them to imagine that these indigenous American societies had no laws, no faith, and no rulers. But even still, when Europeans read about or otherwise learned of Brazilians, they saw a glimpse of something that bewildered them and frightened them, something that was deep in their conscience, something that Europe hadn't really experienced in large part since the days before the Romans. It wasn't really true that uh, Brazilians had no religion. They had shamans named pages and various rituals and all sorts of ceremonies, but it certainly was true they had no organized church with priests telling you how to live. It wasn't really true that they had no political structure, but there were no lords and kings in Brazil. Communities shared belongings amongst each other in a way that seemed almost incomprehensible to Europeans. Like, can you imagine people who don't even realize they can steal other things, you know, steal things from others to get rich? Obviously, nobody on this planet is so stupid. (laughs) Nobody's so stupid they can't realize that stealing is a thing. But instead, what Brazilians had done was forge a society where fewer people did steal. John Hemming, author of Red Gold, writes, quote, there was something almost subversive in the enthusiasm with which early travelers reported this absence of monarchy and church, unquote. Vespucci wrote, quote, they obey nobody. Each is a lord unto himself, unquote. The Portuguese chronicler Magel Hayes de Ganvado reported that villages were led by a council of elders who elected a chief. The French cleric Jean Delery stated, quote, I can tell you there is no more liberal nation under earth, under heaven, provided visitors are not their enemies, unquote. It wasn't just the politics, either. Europeans were shocked by the social freedoms of Brazil. I mean, Brazilian women seem so free to Europeans as to practically be supernatural. What the French of the time called femmes de monde, women of the world. Quote, they are cunning and highly experienced in whatever could help attract men to sleep with one with them. Quote, unquote, said one traveler. I mean, Brazilian women were naked for starters. And in the words of John Hemming, quote, much of the appeal of Brazil was a fantasy. A, a European's version of an adolescent dream world where Carefree single women had complete sexual liberty, unquote. Antonio Pigafetta, the Italian aboard Magellan's fleet, wrote how one Brazilian woman came aboard the ship and he saw her 
take a large iron nail and place it inside her vagina. He thought maybe she was trying to steal it or maybe she was trying to decorate herself. But he was too shocked to do anything else except for stand there slack-jawed as she walked off. And like Pigafetta, his male readers probably could not have envisioned such a scenario before reading it. Now, once you really start reading the accounts of these Europeans who write about Brazil, you realize that Europeans kind of find themselves looking at what... They see a world of fantasy, in, in the words of John Hemming. To, to, to Europe, Brazil was a perfect climate. Birds, animals, delicious fruits, inhabited by beautiful naked people, a paradise on earth. And so Europe starts seeing Americans as noble savage, and this is very pretentious. Because obviously Brazilians are just people, like everybody else. They have laws and rules, laws and rules that let them live more peacefully with their neighbors and more peacefully with nature. Also, laws and rules that made them want to eat other people. Now, that doesn't apply to everybody in Europe, like I said. Not in, Many Europeans see Brazilians as the, the bloody savage, see more of the cannibal side. Noble savages and bloody savages, these are two stereotypes, and, and neither of them are really good for native people. I mean, sure, it's great if you think if people think you're noble and all, but I guess what you want is for people to see you as a person. But to be honest, we're not here to talk about that today. We're talking about the effect of the creation of the noble savages has not on Americans, but what that has on the minds of Europeans. Now, I'm not going to tell you that Europeans learned about Brazil and then whammo, the American Revolution happened because of this single solitary result. I mean, hold on there, cowboys. Far from it. There's no getting around it. Like I said, at the beginning of this episode, Europe was a highly regimented society, one of caste and hierarchy, kings and vassals, and bosses, and nobles, and priests and for most Europeans when they were confronted by the realities of life in Brazil I think they were kind of seduced by the possibilities when Pero de Margelhes noticed that the Tupi languages literally lacked the letters F, L, and R and thus the concepts of lay, fe, and re, faith, law, and ruler in English. Well, what Marcel has, was getting at was something more about Europe than it was about Brazil. I mean, L, I mean, F, L, and R, those are sounds, symbols. They meant nothing in Brazil. But yeah, like I said, F, L, and R could symbolize faith, law, and ruler in Europe. And so, Pero de Margelhes, Amerigo Vespucci, and all these other countless European observers who act as go-betweens in Europe, they, in a way, are acting as agents of colonization from Brazil to Europe. People who are bringing ideas which had been long since extinguished in many European cultures. Brazil suddenly confronted Europe with new ideas and radically different ways of organizing societies. Well, for as for Margelhes, what he thought of the faithless, 
lawless and kingless Tupi society? Quote, a very wonderful thing. They adore nothing. Nor do they believe that after death there is glory for the good and punishment for the wicked, unquote. Wow, people in Europe thought, learning about Brazil from men like Pero de Marcheles. What if I didn't have to listen to my boss and my noble lord and my king and my priest and my judge? Shit. If I lived in Brazil and some lord down the street tried to starve my family, I could eat him. So I just want you to consider that. If you think the idea of cannibalism and the American Revolution being connected might be a little far-fetched. See, in Europe, where this highly regimented society exists, news of Brazil and the creation of America spreads across the continent like wildfire the opening couple of decades of the 16th century. Is it, I would ask you, completely coincidental that Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis up in 1517? I can tell you he certainly wasn't the first person to call for reform in the Catholic Church. But he lived in a new post-Brazil world. And a man who criticized authority in Europe got a lot more supporters in the 1500s than anybody in his same shoes who would have tried in the 1400s. Hell, in 1534, King Henry VIII of England said, hey, fuck it, I'm going to start my own church. He founded the Church of England, which literally, I think, would have been unthinkable before news of America reached Europe. But Henry was living in a world where anything was possible. In 1568, the Dutch revolted against their Habsburg masters. And while it took 80 years for them to throw off the yoke of oppression, when they did, the Dutch did not form a monarchy. They formed a republic. There was no king ruling the Netherlands. The scientific revolution starts around that same time. You know, generally historians pin it as starting at 1515, I mean 1550, excuse me. An anonymous author left an account of the Tupinamba after living with them for 17 years. And in fact, just learning about the Tupinamba could be subversive for the highly regimented European societies. Quote, they elect their chief by the proof he is given of having more power and valor than others. Yet outside of instances of war, he does not retrieve better treatment, esteem, or respect from the rest from whom he is not distinguished, unquote. No, I mean, can you imagine that? No, seriously. Your 16th century European neighbor might ask you after both of you read that book. Can you imagine that? Europe was originally colonized by Romans. Spain and Portugal were recolonized a second time by Berbers and Arabs at the start of the 8th century and colonized a third time during the Reconquista by Christians. There's a great saying out there. It's very simple. The abused abuse. Centuries of conquest and colonization hardened the people of Europe, especially in Spain and Portugal. I mean, the treatment which Native Americans receive at the hands of the conquistadors is kind of proof enough. They have the lessons of colonization 
which the people of the Iberian Peninsula learned. But here's the thing about empire. Centuries and centuries of empire meant that Europe had forgotten about freedom. It was a concept that was literally foreign in much of Europe since before the days of Rome. It turns out the colonization of the Americas was a two-way street. You know, funny freedom is a funny thing. As we learn in Brazil, it might not be safe. No, not at all. And hell, you don't have to take my word for it. Ben Franklin said it best. Sometimes if you want security, you've got to trade some freedom. Where's the right balance? I know, for one, that I desire far more freedom than was allowed in, say, Spain in 1500. Yet we can't deny that the villages of the Tupi and Guarani people of Brazil ended up in intractable wars with their neighbors that went on for so many generations that none, nobody remembered why it had started. And everyone had descended into eating their enemies. Holy soiling green, Batman. Freedom is scary. You can die from the choices you make if you're free. And if even more terrifying, you can be killed by someone else's freedom. guess we can judge this, or balance this, I guess, with the knowledge that we are all going to die one day, no matter what. So I guess I think we might as well be free anyway. I don't know. Now, eventually we'll learn about the Iroquois more. I talked more about this uh, in, in The People of the Sun. Uh, but uh, they kind of had, I think, a really good middle ground between complete freedom and tyranny. Uh, anyway, uh, I think you'll find that in the 18th century, uh, when the British colonies revolted, they borrowed some of that. Um, anyway, until next time, friends, um, I hope we all get plenty of freedom and liberty. And I guess always remember, if freedom does happen to let you down in the worst possible way, you're surrounded by enemies who are about to eat you. Well, in such a day may at least you find solace, hopefully, as the two people. By swearing vengeance that your descendants It's a mutiny, it's a mutiny, it's a mutiny, and now we're taking over the ship. It's a mutiny, it's a mutiny, it's a mutiny, and now we're taking over the ship. happening here you're no longer in control and we're drinking up your beer this is now a democratic eagerly tearing pirate ship so enjoy your trip because it's a mutiny it's a mutiny this is a mutiny and now we're taking over the ship it's a mutiny it's a mutiny it's a mutiny, it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny.
ship. 